I feel so nervous. That's okay. Welcome back to the Taiku Podcast. We've got the whole crew here. Uh, Corey is back finally after a year. Yeah, hold, there's a, hold on, there's a cat. I, I need to move Lucy. I was about to say, how did you know that Mr. Cooper just walked behind me? <laughs> oh, and the other voice you hear. As always, Chris is here. Hola. Uh, okay. Lucy's gone. Bye, Lucy. You will be missed. Lucy can be yeah. like the Mars of the Taiku podcast. The what? Uh, Corey's, Corey's cat Mars is always like sitting on his lap and purring oh. as loud as possible into his microphone. <laughs> oh. It's good times. Yeah. Lucy's more of a claw the monitor type of cat. <laughs> yeah, that, I, uh, yeah, no, I don't recommend that one. Yeah. Alright, we are here to count down our top five movies of 2016. We've done this. Movie movies. What do you mean, movie movies? Like, movie movies. As well, you never know. This is an anime podcast. People might think it was anime uh, movies, but, yeah. but the, you know, but then they 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 would have missed the the previous two episodes that you were just about to talk about before I I had Tourette's and yelled out loud. Uh, please continue, Corey. <laughs> uh, I did not actually see the anime, the good anime movies of 2016. Uh, your silent, name, a silent voice in your name. I'm pretty sure the the notable ones. But they haven't come around the States yet. Or they haven't come around Iowa yet. Probably been in LA and New York. Damn coastal elites getting to watch some good anime films. It's very unfortunate for us. There's also another one that uh, I think Shout Factory picked it up. Oh, the from the corners of the world? Yeah, yeah. I heard that one was good. That's the, that's the MAPPA one that they were showing at their, their Otakon panel a couple years ago. Okay. Well, all right. So, yes. Uh, top five movies. Yeah. Yay. We're counting them down. Top five. Five to one, of course. Uh, we will end out in the show with uh, our honorable mentions. Uh, Chris and I have a little different methodology this time around. Is that the right way to say it? I feel like that's yes. the wrong way to say it. Right after no, I say it. Uh, that, that, that works. Okay. Yeah, methodology is correct. It's not like symbiology or whatever. Symbology. It's symbolism. I already don't like this word. <laughs> um, yes, theme. Just use theme. the word theme. Theme. <laughs> we have themes for our list. We will be explaining them at the top of our lists. But before that, uh, Corey, let's, let's start it off with you. What's your number five of the year? My, my theme is top five. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could I could do a horror theme, but I'm guessing Chris is already doing a horror theme. Spoilers. Uh, Did we really have to like guess that though? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, for number five, uh, I think I'm gonna go with Hunt for the Wilder People. Woo! Does anyone know what see. that is? I, I am fully aware of it. Haven't seen it yet, though. I am also okay. aware of it. Okay. Taiki Watiti. Yep. Uh, it's a New Zealand movie. New 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 Ze New Zealand. It's a, it's a it's a Kiwi film. Ki yeah, that'll work. Yeah. <laughs> That's an adjective. Um, 
Uh, it's got Sam Neill in it. Uh, he plays the uncle. And then the other main character is uh, a boy. Sort of like a... Um, uh, he's uh, moved around from like foster parent to foster parent. And he's kind of a problem child. But only because he hasn't ever really gotten the love he deserves. And the like the child services people treat him as like a problem to solve instead of like a person. And so uh it's about uh the boy Ricky uh being uh his new foster parents are um uh Sam Neil and a lady uh I think her character's name is Bella and uh um so they're like out in the middle of nowhere and so, uh, and he's uh, trying to think. Um, Ricky's like more urban. So like he's out of his element being like surrounded by like just endless acres of forest. And it's a coming of age movie, but not really, not how it usually is. It's, I feel like the hunt for the wilder people is more grounded even though it can be a little fantastical and it's very unique. Like the whole movie's separated into chapters and the main, the main course of the film is Ricky and heck, uh, Sam Neill, uh, end up in the woods and they're stuck there because Sam, uh, fractures his leg and they're gone long enough that the authorities think heck uh, like kidnapped Ricky, uh, and it's keeping him because through circumstances, I don't want to spoil, uh, the child services people want to take him back. So he runs away. Heck finds him. They're stuck in the woods. And so the movie is about them, uh, cause Ricky and Heck are sort of like oil and water. They don't really get to get, uh, get along together. And it's about them, coming together and uh, eluding the authorities. And it's like the end of the movie uh, really ratchets up the stakes, surprisingly. Um, there's like a car chase. I don't know. It's, it's just like a really well done, like there's another movie on my list that is like this, where it like the, the, like the plot or the, like the foundation in itself isn't unique, but the way it's executed is. Um, so, I don't know. But it was really good though. <laughs> so I, I have a question though yeah. about it. Um, so the director, Taika Watiti, this is his second feature. So his first film was the, vampire comedy film we are the shadows or what we are in the shadows whatever the heck it's called right and his and i still haven't seen that one but that's supposedly just really really funny and his next movie is the new thor movie i saw that which is weird (laughs) where does this movie like kind of fit into a extreme parody vampire comedy and freaking thor 3 it is way closer to vampire comedy. 
Okay. So so this is um, a much there there's like here I'll I'll give you some context. So while um they so they're out in the woods and there's I don't know, I don't go out in the woods. Um but they're uh for hikers they're like these um stations, they're like little um houses where that where people like it's like a community thing. So like you leave books there, supplies there in return for, you know, taking some of the supplies. Um, and they go there and they find a guy, I think he was diabetic and he didn't have his medication. So Ricky like runs off to try to find someone and he, he happens upon this girl and she's like riding a horse and she's like very beautiful to him and it's like very majestic. And he like kind of falls for this girl and they take him back. And by this point, like Heck and Ricky are like notorious. So like this girl's dad finds out that Ricky is in his house and he flips out because he thinks it's the coolest thing. And he takes like a selfie with him and he like posts it on Twitter and he's like, oh, look, I'm with Ricky, like the famous, you know, (laughs) kid that ran away with the supposed child molester pervert Sam Neill. Uh, and there's also uh, Reese Darby is like a tinfoil hat, like truther, <laughs> like <laughs> lunatic person. Uh, and the, at one point they go to him for help, but he's actually no help at all. Like uh, at one point he's like, oh, we have to hide in my bunker under this trailer and then he goes and like removes the cover for the bunker and there's no bunker and he's like oh that's right i didn't build the bunker goodness uh, so <laughs> well it, it, so it sounds it sounds like it is more more funny but it's got a good sweet core to it somewhere yeah in the inappropriateness yeah well good i don't know why i haven't seen that yet but you know i've it's uh, been on my radar for a very long time it's on Hulu for subscribers. Uh, well, everybody's a subscriber now. Like, didn't Hulu uh, c- completely kill their free? Did they? That's what I had last heard. Oh, or they were I don't going know. to. <laughs> I'm not a subscriber. Otherwise, you can you know rent it or buy it, whatever. It's out. It's out in the wild now. I'm sorry. I won't do it again. <laughs> Okay, uh, number five, Hunt for the Wilder People. Chris, uh, you're a number five. <sighs> okay. Well, first off, this is probably my favorite episode of the podcast every year because as people who know me, I, I really like movies. Um, <laughs> it's not hard to argue that I like movies more than anime. Um, I watch a lot of movies, um, but not not too much of the newer stuff. Anyway... Um, I did do, I did, I did decide to do like a more of a themed list this year. Cause the last couple of years, I never really did a top five anyway. I would just pick, you know, here's five movies that I want to talk about with maybe number one, well, always number one and maybe number two being my actual favorites. Um, and I found that those movies that I choose to talk about, I actually think about them more frequently and watch them more frequently than 
<laughs> than what my real top five would be. The best example would be The Guest um, from a couple years ago. I've watched that movie like six times. Damn. <laughs> I listen to the soundtrack constantly, it seems, on my phone. So, what? I'm not broken. I'm being told I'm broken. I can, no, no. The Guest is very good. The guest is amazing. Um, so, so I thought, okay, so for this year, I'm just going to talk about horror movies because I am a big, 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 big horror fan. Um, and also because this year was incredible for horror movies and we had at least two very distinct, uh, instances of the general crit- critic media declaring that horror was dead. And that the genre is dead and all this other like complete nonsense um, in a year that was actually really fucking exceptional um, for horror. Um, <laughs> and then I started to put together my actual list and four of my top five were horror anyway. So it wasn't that much of a stretch just to replace one uh, one title. So let's talk about horror movies for yeah. the next three hours. Um, I'm okay with that. What is my number five? I was trying to figure out what to do here. And, okay, my number five is Netflix original movies are actually pretty good. Uh Uh-oh. What are you? Oh, I'm excited. (laughs) I'm excited. Um, So Netflix is notorious for having the absolute worst horror movies of all time on their service. And this year... Uh, they decided to really ramp up their quote-unquote original programming, which isn't really original programming. They just buy stuff. They have a lot of original stuff, I noticed, like they, more than I knew. That's because this of this year. Like, it got kind of gross. Like, every week there was a new it's, Netflix original something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, and so... Two of the movies that got released as Netflix originals are horror films, and they're pretty darn good. One of them, I would say, is pretty good. The other one actually might be my genuine top five, and that is Hush. Yes. And I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. I have not watched I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House yet. And I, I'm totally cheating because I feel like talking about more things. I could honestly do like a top 20 of nothing but horror films and actually <laughs> and actually talk about good horror movies that came out this year. Not, e- not even start getting into like bad stuff that existed. Um, <laughs> so I'll start with the, the lesser of the two, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Um, this is actually um, this is the second feature film from director Oz Perkins, who is the son of famed Anthony Perkins, who was the star of Alfred Hitchcock's infamous horror film Psycho. Oh, okay. uh, a, a lot of people would know Oz from some of his acting credits. Um, the one that I, for some reason, always remember him in was uh, Legally Blonde. Um Look, Legally Blonde is good. You should shut your snickering mouth. Uh, <laughs> isn't there isn't there a Japanese Legally Blonde that's being made with Imitsune, the voice of Honoka from Love I, Live? I think I saw something like a, a small blurb on it, but I didn't follow through. So I'm right now. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so this is his second feature film, 
I can't wait to see his first film when it is finally released. Um, his first film was called February. It was, uh, supposed to be released in July of last year. Then it got pushed to August. Then it got pushed to September. And then it completely disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, but now in four days, it will be released on direct TV and then to the general public sometime in March. It's now called The Black Coat's Daughter. If anyone listening has heard of this film or seen the trailers for The Black Coat's Daughter, that's his first film. Uh, so anyway, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House is his second film, and it is extremely low budget. Um, but it works it like a champion. So the basic premise of the film is um, this girl, Lily, she's a hospice nurse who moves into this gigantic uh, kind of southern style house, but it's uh, in Massachusetts. And the, the old lady who lives there is a horror author called Mrs. Blum, uh, like, like Blumhouse the horror studio. Um, and while she is staying there, she starts to have like these weird occurrences. Like there's mold growing on the walls. Um, and unbeknownst to her, this is actually more of a haunted house. Uh, we, we as an audience get to see the ghost. Um, but the ghost doesn't actually haunt or terrorize this, uh, this girl. So she just spends, a year of her life living in this house, unbeknownst that there is a dark history and that there is a ghost named Polly wandering around. What I think is really interesting about this movie is it it uses its really, really low budget to great effect. It's very sparse. It's very quiet. It has a very indie movie type feel to it, but it never it never gets boring. It never feels like it's just dragging on. It's constantly moving. There's this constant sense of dread, even though the protagonist is oblivious to, um, to the horrors that surround her. And then you have Oz Perkins interjecting these really artful scenes, um, that feature, uh, both Polly, the ghost and Lily, the protagonist, in these kind of strange smoke images. They're faded. They're not quite there, not quite not there, surreal, merging and mixing, all overlaid with a black screen with a, a kind of sepia tone on top of it. It's really good-looking um, and really interesting. And so those scenes, they just kind of like tease at the viewer's brain and, filled, and, and fill you with tension so there's no tension happening in the story but you feel the tension from the atmosphere that um oz perkins creates and it eventually comes to a head and steamrolls at the end of course as it should um but the simple fact that it's able to be so quiet and calm never be boring and be intellectually interesting and uh visually artistic huge you know, is huge for me um, when watching not just a horror movie, but any kind of movie. And the fact that this is a Netflix original film that has a one star user rating should tell you that it's good. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely I definitely recommend that one. But it is the lesser of the two. Go ahead, Corey. I was going to say 
maybe this will, this will be an honorable mentions. I don't know. I watched Under the Shadow last night, which is uh I still haven't seen that one, but I've heard that one was good. It has like a two and a half or something on Netflix or whatever. It's 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 wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> it, it's it's a great movie. So yeah, I can I can see the Netflix average audience just But you, you can't take that as a grain of salt right. either. Because the next film, part of my Netflix original things, has a five-star user rating, and it is a five-star fucking movie because it's incredible. It is. It is. Um, it, it's called Hush. Um, so Hush is the new – what was, when it came out earlier this year, the new feature from Mike Flanagan, who directed one of my favorite horror movies of 2013, the extremely underrated Oculus, starring uh, Karen Gillian. Uh, of Doctor Who fame for those listening. Um, Oculus was incredible and it just doesn't, it, it, it doesn't get talked about enough. Um, did so you, he, did you watch Ouija origin of evil? I did not. So that okay. was his other movie that came out this year. So Mike Flanagan actually had three movies that were supposed to come out this year. Only two of them actually did. The third one is stuck in hell by our future secretary of the treasury's illegal dealings with the movie studio that he co-owns. So fuck that all to hell. Um, I'm not lying. So that Moonshin guy that's you know, nominated for secretary right. of treasury. He's co-owner of relativity pictures and he's been, uh, basically stealing money from that company. And so the third film from Flanagan is called before I wake, which we all saw trailers for all year round. Cause it was supposed to come out in September uh, about the little boy whose dreams come to life. Um, that is still on hold. Maybe we'll get to see it anyway. Hush. <laughs> Um, Hush is a film. It's it's a home invasion thriller. Um, so for anyone listening, um, similar movies would be The Strangers uh, with Liv Tyler from a few years ago. The uh, vastly superior Ills, um, a French movie translated as Them. Uh, You're Next from I 2013. Still need to see that. uh, that's a home invasion thriller as well. Um, so this is basically a stripped-down, bare-bones, essential, no-winks attempt on that genre. So, like, your next added some kind of meta-humor, some um, genre expectation twists to really breathe life into that film. Hush sticks with the basic formula, cuts it down to the, the, the absolute marrow of the genre, and executes it perfectly. So what the film is about is we have an author. Um, I can't remember her name right now. I don't remember it either. <laughs> she um, she lives kind of secluded in um, a really nice house in the middle of the woods. Um, she's got a couple of neighbors who they, you know, the house is like a quarter mile down the road or something. It's kind of that really not even rural, you know, just living in the woods type of feel to it. Um, Maddie. Her name's Maddie. Maddie. And the thing is, Maddie is deaf and mute. Uh, when she was a teenager, she contracted uh, meningitis and went deaf and mute because of this. So the film spends the first five minutes or so introducing you to Maddie as she's trying to cook. And she's got all these crazy things in her house to try to help her. 
um, because she can't hear like fire alarms or anything like that. And her best friend, uh, who is her neighbor, Sarah, she comes over and they chat for a little bit and Sarah goes home. So Maddie's hanging out there. We're now six or seven minutes into the movie and I won't spoil the next bit, but basically there's now a dude who um, shows up at the house and just wants to murder Matt. Uh, he's a, he's a pure psychopath type of character. Um, no backstory, no history really dives down into what some people claim is the essence of horror, kind of like a Michael Myers from Halloween. He just, he's there and he's going to fucking kill you. And it's terrifying. And you spend the next hour and 20 minutes with Maddie while this dude is creeping around her house, breaking into her house and eventually actually attempting to murder her. It is intense. It is so cool. I really, really enjoyed this movie and taking just into the scope of home invasion thrillers. I'd mark it as one of the best home invasion movies. Um, Home invasion movies. I think generally they're pretty good, but they tend to get mired down more in, you know, either tedium of, oh, no, there's someone trying to get into the house or just pure brutality of like, um, which I've heard is really good, but I haven't seen it yet. Uh, Funny Games, which is a home invasion thriller that's supposedly just absolutely fucking brutal. Um, this kind of sits neatly in the middle. You you. The, oh, someone's trying to get into the house isn't played out too long. So you get the suspicion and the fear um, building up within you and you get um, the more action bits. What really helps this movie, though, is the killer is really well done. Um, he's played by dude whose name I can't remember, but he also starred in. I got it for you. John Gallagher, <laughs> Jr. John Gallagher Jr., who is also in 10 Cloverfield Lane, uh, which is another... Oh, he was? He was the other dude in the bunker. Oh, really? Oh. I didn't recognize him at all either. Like, it's amazing what a beard will do to a person. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, he is absolutely incredible as the um, assailant. Um, he, he, he is able to deliver like pure insanity like the the dude when he looks at the at the camera or looks at maddie like all he wants to do is kill her because it's fun and that's all he cares about and he really sells that delivery um and then maddie herself um you spend a movie with basically two people they better be awesome and they are um the girl who plays maddie is really, really good at delivering um, emotion, especially fear, without any sound because she's mute. Um, so everything relies on her facial expressions and her body language. And so it's incredible. Um, Mike Flanagan's visual style um, helps amplify this. So he never overdoes it. Um, but what he does periodically throughout the film is he modifies the sound design to reflect what it's like to be deaf. So he'll, he'll drown out the sound like, um, when there's, uh, she's cooking or whatever, you hear all the noises, the pops, the, the sizzle, um, 
the oven. You, you hear all these various noises, and then he'll cut that sound out. Um, but instead of being silent, it's more of a drone noise. And he repeats that uh, motif two or three times throughout the film, so it doesn't overdo it. But what it does is it really helps put the viewer in her shoes. Excuse me in her shoes so that we feel what it's like to be deaf so that when we see her sitting there typing and trying to think of, you know, the best way to end her new novel and fucking dude is standing right behind her with his, with her cell phone, you, you, you are able to empathize greatly with what it's like to not hear any noise whatsoever to be in that house, in that situation and it's terrific, and it continues that throughout uh, the entire movie. Fucking incredible. Um, I, I had heard that it was really good when it was coming out, and I was like, man, Mike Flanagan did great things with Oculus, but this is a Netflix original movie. Like, I didn't buy it. There was no way that I was going <laughs> to buy it. And I actually didn't finally sit down to watch this until Thursday night, uh, just four days ago, because I was like, what am I doing here? I haven't seen Hush yet. I need to shut up, sit down, and watch this movie. And I was like, yes, no, this movie is really great. Um, so, yeah, Netflix original movies, they know what they're doing somehow when it comes to horror, despite only having, like, most of the really terrible horror movies on their catalog. Uh, so keep an eye out. Uh, but, yeah, don't miss Hush. And if you like uh, haunted house movies and are looking for something – a little bit different, definitely check out I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House. Okay, I'm done. Uh, well, we will be hearing more about Netflix movies upcoming. Uh, oh, oh, I, I have an idea what your theme is now. <laughs> yeah, um, I have not seen any of these movies. Hush is very good. I, I uh, am borrowing a relative's Netflix, and that was... That was the, uh, that's what started it. I was like, oh, I need to see Hush. I need Netflix, but I don't want to pay for it just for Hush. <laughs> so I need to find someone who has Netflix. That's always a good plan. I still am leeching off of my terrible parents' Netflix account. I'm leeching off my not terrible parents' Netflix account. So jealous of you and your not terrible parents. <laughs> uh, all right, number, number five, Hush, and I'm three things that live in the house. Uh, that sounds like an anime title. It is crazy long. Like I had to look it, I had to look it up, and I typed it into a little notepad file so that I could read it when I spoke it because, like, I couldn't even find it yesterday when I went to watch it because I was I couldn't remember I couldn't remember the damn title. So I'm just looking through the pictures for the title card that has the title filling up the whole fucking frame. <laughs> I was like, God, I can never remember this. All right, uh, on to my number five, and uh, Corey, as you may have guessed, my number five is all uh, by minority creators or having a majority minority cast. Um, it helps that there was uh, a huge amount of very good movies uh, falling under this banner. Like, there are four movies that I might consider for top five that do not, uh, do not hit these uh, requirements. I'll be talking about those later. As for my number five, I chose, uh, I forget, um, who originally created this. Oh, uh, the 
the play by August Wilson, and now a movie by Denzel Washington named Fences. Uh, Corey, you saw this, right? Yep. All right. It's pretty good. What? I was going to say, it's like, you know, if you want to bring it back to anime, it's like, maybe this isn't apt, but I think of the Monogatari series as a talking series, and Fences is a very talking movie. Yeah, there is a lot of very good monologues in Fences, or uh, dialogues in Fences. Um, it's about this uh, this family in the 50s? 50s uh, 60s? Somewhere around there. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, um, it's uh, definitely steeped in Jim Crow-era America, um, but they live in Pittsburgh. Um, the kid, who is also named Corey... Uh, plays plays football, and the father, Denzel Washington, used to play baseball in the Negro Leagues, and he was just a little too old to uh, get past the color barrier and play for the for, play for Major League Baseball. And he makes several disparaging comments about Jackie Robinson and how he was definitely better than him. But this is basically just about uh, like their. It doesn't often directly bring up the issue of race, but it talks about it such that uh, people like Denzel Washington and uh, his wife, whose name I forget, um, internet, don't feel Viola like Davis. Uh, yes, Viola Davis. Uh, Viola Davis? That's um, not... That's the actor. Right. Uh, Rose. So, Rose. Rose and Troy. And Denzel is Troy, yeah. yeah. They're the main characters, um... They're, these are the, the characters that uh, they they see these societal blockades not allowing them to do like play in Major League Baseball or uh, have the same kind of rights that white people have, and they don't want to go beyond that because they don't want to challenge the status quo. But there are certain things that they definitely will go beyond. Like Troy wants to. Troy works as a uh, garbage disposal man. He works on the back of the truck and loads all the garbage into the truck. But uh, only the white man can be the driver, and he wants to do that. And that's the kind of thing that he's willing to push. But there's also things that he's not willing to push, like his kid who plays football wants to uh, play professionally, but he puts so many... Um, so many blockades in front of his kid that he's just not allowed to do that because he believes that uh, black people will never be able to play sports on the same level as white people. It's also a, re a reflection of Troy himself. Yeah, because he uh, he thought he was good enough, but he was really too old. But in actuality, he might not have been good enough. So he has these ingrained inferiorities about his own sports playing and, by extension, his son's sports playing. But really, it's just like this this guy, Troy, who's trying to live his life the best he can in the fucked up situation that is America in the uh, 50s. Troy's kind of an asshole. He definitely is. <laughs> Goodness. Okay. Yeah, so he uh, he is yeah, a very terrible person. Well, not... That's way too far. But... <laughs> he makes some bad decisions. Yeah, he makes some bad decisions, uh, but he... What he is trying to do is always in the best interest of 
uh, at least himself, himself or his family. Definitely Corey. Um, he always feels like he's doing what's best for his kid, even though he never says that outright. And his kid doesn't understand it because uh, he's a kid and Troy is being way too harsh for him to be able to pick that up. Uh, but, you know, they have, uh, Troy and Corey have this, uh, into spoiler section, where Troy and Corey have this kind of falling out, um, where Corey is kicked out of the house and he just joins the Marines. Um, and Corey never really forgives him for this. Um, that really bummed me out. Yeah, until, until, like, the end of the movie, when, uh, Troy's brother, who was injured in World War One and had a partial lobotomy. Uh, so he, uh, he's special needs, and, like, the police in this time don't care. They just want to arrest black people. Um, but he's in and out of prison because of this, because of disturbing the peace and uh, being a general nuisance when you won't really understand what's wrong with him. Um, but he plays... He brings a trumpet around everywhere, and he plays the trumpet at the end of the movie, and it's raining, or it was raining, and it was cloudy. So he plays the trumpet, and he's like, uh, he is appealing to God to let Troy uh, come to heaven, because deep down, Troy is a good guy, which he definitely is. And at that, at that final shot of the movie, it is the clouds moving away and revealing the sun. It's like, yeah, that's, that's Troy, that's his, uh, that's his, uh, his moment, his redeeming moment. With expenses. I w- can't wait to see it one day soon. <laughs> it's very good. Yep. I don't get I don't get out to the theaters too much, so I I, I miss a lot of the uh, these big Oscar movies or whatever. Uh, I'm not big on going to the theaters just for the Oscar movies anyway. I'll try I'll try to fit one or two in, but Fences definitely I missed out on that one. Which is surprisingly played here, unlike um, some other movies I'm pretty sure Corey's going to talk about that never fucking played here until, like, last week. So, I am ashamed. I apologize. Fucking Colorado. Colorado Springs. Get it right, I thought son. Colorado gets all the movies. You have the draft house. In Denver. See, so um, all the way to Denver. Yeah. Okay. So I'm even choosier as to the ones that I, I, I make the, the trip up to Denver to go see. <laughs> Uh, so if I was making an actual top five list, I think Fences would be the one that would fall out of it, but it would definitely still be in a, in a top ten. Uh, anyway, number five, Fences. Uh, let's uh, read some of these reader lists, shall we? Listener lists? Oh boy. Listen to this. This is a cool feature. I like this feature. I suppose we won't have any readers. Well, we have a blog, blog-ish, but uh, readers uh, slash listeners. Listeners, uh, whatever. Pick one. All right. Uh, our, our friends list, actually. Yeah, basically. <laughs> friends of the pod. Uh, Izanga. Her her list was uh, Hidden Figures, Kubo and Two Strings, Zootopia, Red Turtle, and Rogue One. So Red Turtle is one that is not showing in Iowa yet. No. I'm very bugged by it because I want to see it. Same. I didn't even know that that was like a movie movie. I thought it was a short film, but I'm probably confusing it with some other Ghibli thing. Yeah, probably. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's a movie movie. Yeah, it is a movie movie. Um, it's gonna be showing at our art house theater. Uh, oh, another one that I that I missed out on because it's not showing here yet is I Am Not Your Negro, which would probably be on my list. I've been I've been really I follow 
Magnolia Pictures. Uh, they're a uh, releasing company. They do a lot of really, really good stuff. They've just been nonstop promoting I Am Not Your Negro, and I really want to see it, and I'm just upset. Yeah, I'm really looking forward <laughs> to seeing that one. Uh, if you know nothing about it, it's uh, it's based off of a book that was partially written before James Baldwin's death. And it is uh, sure to be a uh, Sunday happy movie. So joyful. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've seen three of the movies that Dana put in her top five, so at least I'm not doing too bad there. Whew. Yeah, I've seen everything but Rick Turtle. <laughs> All right, uh, on to the number fours. Chris, your number four starts off. Whew, okay, my number four is, God damn, does South Korea make some good fucking movies? Oh, no. Oh, what are you picking? <laughs> um, my true number four, Train to Busan, and the runner-up, The Wailing. I'm picking both of the South Korean horror movies that uh, came out this year. I'm going to train... I, I can't remove Train to Busan from my list, so it's going to be on there. So oh, I think we're both going to have to talk about it. I think we're both going to have to talk about The Wailing, even though I don't think that's on my list. Yeah, The Wailing wasn't going to be on my list, but I was like, no, you know what? It is still really good, and there's too many good horror movies to not try to talk about everything. And there was a theme. They're from South Korea. Uh, well, we, oh, have yeah. to, we have to make up for the loss of Casey somehow. So, Chris, you'll just have to talk about ten movies. <laughs> I know oh, this will boy. be so difficult for you. <laughs> this will be this will be so difficult. Oh man, I'll just have to come up with other things then, because my top three, I was just going to do one movie on each of those. I'll have to fix that. You not have to. Do. Um, uh, of the of the two movies I rewatched, one of those was Train to Busan. I rewatched it this morning. Nice. Uh, it it was just as powerful the second time. Okay, so. I'll save Train to Busan and get The Wailing out of the way. Um, the Wailing right, is a whale. film. <laughs> the Wailing is a film Huge. called. Uh, <laughs> <sighs> I don't even know. I don't even know where to begin now because it's huge. It is. It is like two hours and thirty minutes. Like <laughs> it's a lot. But then while you're watching the movie, like it feels even bigger than that. So the film, it takes place in, uh, like, uber rural South Korea. Like, it's a mountain village population, probably, like, 50. For, you know, for everyone that we see in the movie, it's a really, really small town. Um, and we follow <clears> – <throat> excuse me. I need to bring up the page because these names. Oh, uh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so the, the the main character is a um, police sergeant. His name is uh, Jonggu, and he is basically kind of the stereotypical bumbling cop. He's not very good at his job. He's overweight, and he's just kind of goofy. There is a huge, like, very nasty murder. This dude murdered his entire relative family. So the, the guy is the, the uncle of the husband and he went to their house. Um, he murdered the husband at his house, moved the body to the family's house, murdered the wife and the kids and the maid, the whole nine yards um, in, in, in an extraordinarily brutal fashion. And the, the uncle, when he, he is found at the crime scene covered in lesions um, and his eyes are completely milked over. 
what happens next is there's a couple more um, extremely brutal murders that occur in this small village. And the the suspect, the, the perpetrator of the crimes, they're always covered with these lesions and have these milky white eyes. And one night while talking to uh, one of his uh, cop buddies who uh, I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to bother. <laughs> I, I think it's like Byung Yu, um, Bung, Byung Un or something. Um, he, he starts spreading rumors and gossiping about the new Jap in town. Um, so for, for our listeners, if you aren't aware, Koreans and Japanese people, they kind of hate each other. Um, there's at least, some. at least traditionally. Um, so there's a lot of Japanese movies, uh, especially by uh, one of my favorite directors, Takashi Miike, that deals with the racism in J- Japan against Koreans. So it, this film, it, it's kind of showing you that same inherent racism against Japanese um, with this uh, stranger who moved to the town. And so they, they, it, it's, it's completely baseless rumors. The, the, the new Japanese guy, as soon as he showed up, everybody started being crazy and started killing people. So obviously it must be the Japanese guy. Um, the Japanese man is played by the inimitable Jun Kunimura, who look him up awesome. on IMDb. He's in at least everything that you've ever seen from Japan. He was, um, so he's in Chihaya Fudu as. He, he, Harada Sensei. He played Harada Sensei in the in the anime too. He was his voice. Really? Yes. Was he? Yes. Oh, shit. What the fuck? <laughs> I didn't even notice that because, like, when in the live action movie, I'm like, oh no, he's perfect. This is perfect. He's yeah. Perfect because no, he he's was the dude. He's also in Sheen Godzilla as a military man. He was in the uh, the Kill Bill movies. He was Boss yep. Tanaka. Um, he was in uh, Why Don't You Play in Hell, the absolutely incredible Sion Sono film from a couple years ago. He's in Attack on Titan, Parasite movies, uh, The World of Kanako, which I talked about last year as an almost ran. But Was he in that? I don't yeah. It's been a while since I watched that. Dude is in everything. If you watch a Japanese movie and you got like some some really gruff kind of mob boss type character even if he's not a mob boss he has that air about him it is it is jun kunimura um he's really terrific um <laughs> and so the the cop Junggu, he starts stepping outside of his his role as a police officer and begins harassing uh this japanese man they they go to his house they break in um they find this weird satanic ritual um, den with pictures of the the murdered people and, and the victims items and, from and the various victims. items. And One so they, of which is his daughter's shoe. Which so now Jungu is it's personal. Everything off. It's, it's personal now because he's targeting his daughter. Um, and it kind of steamrolls from there. Um, like Corey was saying, the movie is two and a half hours long and there were, there, there are a couple of spots. I feel that it kind of does drag down a tear, but by the time the two and a half hours are over, you feel that they were two and a half hours pretty darn well spent. Um, the film is heavy, heavy, heavy on the religious parable 
Um, uh, yeah, I I feel like I'm because I read some stuff on that, and I feel like I'm like I'm like I feel like if I if I had read the Bible, like I might be able to get more out of this movie. It's definitely it's definitely one of those movies like um, so the exorcist is extremely terrifying because it's fucked up. Um, but the exorcist plays better to extremely religious people uh, because extremely religious people, they have the inherent fear of the devil and the, the, the way that the devil masks himself and infiltrates our lives and perverts us. The Wailing is exactly the same way. It's It's got some really visceral moments, and it's very powerful. Uh, there's a zombie at one point. There's a local shaman who performs um, these really elaborate rituals, and there's kind of, you know, quasi-exorcist possession um, uh, elements going on. But for someone who's extremely religious, this probably reaches out to them a lot more um, the film opens with a quote from the Bible, um, from the book of Luke. And that quote is actually spoken at the very end of the film by one of the characters who is remaining. I will not spoil a single cent of this movie. And it's, it's extremely powerful and really terrifying stuff. Um, one of the things that, that still kind of bugged me about the film is the racism aspect because Koreans don't like Japanese, just like Japanese don't like Koreans. And this film really seems to play into that racism without ever, without ever redeeming itself. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's, it's doesn't ever really confront the xenophobia. And it's not there for, for much more of a purpose other than to spark the xenophobia in the cast, which creates the witch hunt that spirals into the madness that is the last, like, half hour. Um, so that's one of the, that's one of the things that kind of bugged me about the film, but I don't know, I don't know anything about South Korean culture. I don't pretend yeah, to. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe, maybe that's just me being an outsider looking in. Maybe it's, maybe there is something being spoken or maybe they're okay with hating on the Japanese guy, but I don't know why Jun Kunimura would have agreed to do the film if that was the case. Um, because it's not like, this is a Japanese film and he was just down the street and said, you're in everything. Will you like to be in this? You know, he had to fly to Korea <laughs> uh, to, to do this movie. So there, I'm pretty sure there's many elements that I'm missing. Um, but yeah, the wailing is excellent. Um, it, it plays off more like a folk tale. Uh, yeah. Like if you were to like, because it, the, the village is in the mountains. So it, it generates, that kind of uh, spoken word legend vibe, which I really wish Casey was here because he's big on that because he's from uh, Appalachia and he always talks about, you know, his extremely, you know, Appalachia mountain woman grandma that raised him and told him these types of stories. He might be able to, to fill in the words that I'm trying to come up with better. Um, but it definitely has this real timeless folk tale uh, allure to it. Um, wrapped up in this really terrifying religious parable. So that's the wailing. Now the train to Busan is fucking incredible, and everyone who's listening to this, just it's it's on video. Like the Blu-ray is fourteen dollars because Wellgo USA puts out really cheap shit. They just put the movie Was on the. It? Yeah, I paid thirty dollars for it. What? 
No way, man. Yeah. So it's available here in the U.S. by Wellgo USA, and that Blu-ray is dirt cheap. Uh, it's the still, same with the whaling. Still, well, it's at least thirty dollars on Amazon. Goodness, well, Amazon doesn't have a sale right now. <laughs> well, it, it's it's worth thirty dollars anyway. It it is. Um, so where the whaling is this really quiet, subdued, um, universal existential horror building from within a troubled village, the Train to Busan is the big blockbuster horror movie. Um, it's directed by Yong Sang Ho, who this is his third feature film, um, but his first live action film. So previously he did animated movies, uh, one of which I know gained some notoriety. It was called The King of Pigs uh, and came out in 2011. Uh, his two animated films were never released here in the U.S. until this past summer by Olive Films. I'm pretty sure it was because they were trying to cash in on the Train to Busan hype. Uh, but The King of Pigs was released in the U.K. So, yeah, so you have a filmmaker who made two animated films directing a live-action zombie movie that is as well storyboarded and thought out like it was an actual animated film. Um, I, I feel like, so at the start of the movie, um, they when they get on the train, they say it's going to take an hour to get from Seoul to Busan. And I, the movie's two hours long, I, and based on what happens in the movie, I feel like they respect that travel time based on the times that the train stops and, you know, when they have to move around. So they do, they do and they don't. Um, so you're not on the train actually moving for an hour. Um, the, the asides that they take on the journey take longer than, you know, five minutes. I or feel like that, like that, that would like the travel time that all adds up though, because it would be an hour nonstop on a bullet train. But, you know, they, they don't go nonstop. They're, you know, they run into trouble. <laughs> That's that's possible. I'll have to try to see if I can pay more attention to that. But that would be really cool, cause, like more of a, a real time feel to it. Um, but yeah, the Train to Busan is a zombie movie, and it is, in my estimation, the hands down best goddamn zombie thing in at least fifteen years. Yeah. Um, I haven't been able to decide yet if it's better or if I like it more than twenty eight days later. So that's why I stop at fifteen years. Um, if I rewatch 28 days later and I think Train to Busan is better, then it goes like 30 years. Um, it's absolutely incredible. Um, I got, I got to see this movie. It was a surprise treat, uh, when I went to the Alamo Draft House horror movie marathon for Halloween. Didn't even know, you know, it's, it's all surprise movies. They just, you know, show you movies. That sounds awesome. <laughs> it's really fun. I've gone the last three years, and I will keep going as long as I can. Um, and what you get is a movie that is filled with heart. Um, I cried quite a yep. bit yep. Um, at multiple sections. Um, extremely rich characters. Like these, these characters are extremely well defined and the different dimensions to these characters, like you can find something somewhere to be sympathetic towards. Nobody is, he's the good guy and he's the villain, like in the very black and white, dull, in my opinion, walking dead 
I'd Nobody's... say one of them gets he, close to that. He he does get close, but then the revelations towards the end of the movie, you're like, no, nah, yeah, he's just, he's just I mean, kind of a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I I didn't notice that the first, like I I didn't really pay the watching it the second time this morning. The the bit you're talking about, the redeeming bit. Uh, yeah. I, it, it just I makes him more, more. He's more pathetic, yeah. than sympathetic. But he's yeah. he's not a, a cartoonishly drawn. Yeah, he's, he's not thing. like pure evil. Yeah, and it's really it's actually a really funny movie on top of it, which is it, it's kind of crazy. So, uh, South Korean movies, I, I love them to death, but they're kind of like Japanese movies in which they have this constant thread of humor, no matter how fucked up uh, the subject matter is. Um, my favorite character, his name is uh, Sang-Hwa, yep, playing, he's played the best. by Don Sukma. He is absolutely incredible um, as the, the doting father-to-be. Um, Jesus, where am I getting my head at? So the movie is about a zombie <laughs> outbreak. Um, <laughs> it's a zombie outbreak. I mean, it, it's, it's not this huge, complex uh, storyline. You have the extremely successful capitalist father – who is absentee from his daughter's life. Um, his daughter demands to go visit uh, her mom. They're divorced, of course. And instead of, instead of letting her just go off and do this, he goes with her. And so they get on the train to Busan to go visit her mom. And while they're doing this, the zombie apocalypse is happening around them. And they don't really notice it because it's at the very uh, beginning and an infected person um, escapes onto the train just as it's leaving the port and sail. And now you have Snowpiercer, where you're trying to travel from train <laughs> uh, train car to train car to stay alive because zombies are fucking going all over the place. Um, and that's it. That's the that's the movie. Um, and it's got the kind of really big, outlandish zombie um, set pieces, like from World War Z. You know, they, the the comical zombie tower. They actually have stuff like that in this movie, but it's not a joke. Like World War Z, that was a joke because of how ridiculous it was. Like, and all all these other zombie movies of the past couple of years, it's like, well, that's just kind of silly. The Train to Busan sells you on it. Um, wholeheartedly and it turns these kind of caricature events into really terrifying um, set pieces into terrifying sequences you care about the characters you you learn them as they're trying to survive you they don't it doesn't spend an hour introducing you to everybody you introduced you're introduced to everybody while they're running for their lives, you know, 30 people just got murdered and that one dude survived. Who is this guy? And let's get to know him. Um, and it, it introduces you to a ton of characters that you actually do get to care about. Not everybody lives, not everybody dies. I'm not going to say anything, but, you know, just because, oh, that character, you know, they taught, they see that character a whole lot. He must be one of the guys who lives. It's not black and white. Um, and it's heartbreaking and it's thrilling and it is incredible. Anyone who thinks The Walking Dead is great, which I, it's okay if you do. It's not my cup of tea and I don't care to ever catch up on the show. But 
you owe it to yourself to watch the train to Busan because this is, this is a zombie movie. This is what we want. Like it's not the George Romero, um, more of a dry, more political commentary building horror. It's not crazy action, blow up everything. Zack Snyder, Dawn of the Dead remake zombie movie. It's in between. It's nonstop. It's, filled with action, it's filled with heart, it's filled with character, it has got a political um, theme to it. Um, it. This movie is totally anti-capitalist, so fuck you, capitalist pigs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it, it, this movie has everything from, you know, the different style of zombie film crammed in together, and it works. Uh, when you watch some of the set pieces, um, like, for example, the zombie tower that's similar to World War Z that I mentioned, you, you look at it and you're just like, that is incredible. And it all comes back from the director being an animation director. Like, you can see how much time and care he spent on storyboarding these sequences and plotting how to how to do this the best way possible from an animator's point of view and then turned it into live action. And it's so fucking cool. I have it sitting right over here. I may watch it later today. I don't know. You Who knows? <laughs> Train to Busan is incredible. And yeah, this was my actual, like when I put together my favorite movies of the year, this is my actual number five of my four out of five movies were actual horror movies. Like this movie beats out any of the other more standard fare movies um, that I saw this year. I'm sorry. We'll talk about it again later, so you don't have to. You don't have to talk more, Corey. I'm sorry. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll bring it back around. I I have some more stuff to say. But yeah, I want to watch all the movies with Don Sokma in it because he is Me the too. best character. Yes. He's so good. <laughs> Whew. Yes. All right, number four, Train to Busan and The Wailing. Uh, on to my number four. Um, I, for this one, I, it was only number four because I'm not through with the entire movie yet, which... That's weird. That, that gives it away because it is uh, O.J. Made in America. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm about three parts through this. Um, it is... Uh, it is one of the nominations for uh, Best Documentary Feature for the Academy Awards, and it is longer than all of the other ones combined by about 45 minutes. Um, it is about uh, just the entire the entire life of OJ. It is made, directed by Ezra Eggleman uh, through ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary series. Um, so the, the, the parts that I have watched, the first part focuses on uh, OJ, the football player, from... Uh, high school star to college superstar to uh, NFL superstar and uh, media mogul, I guess, sort of. Um, he, it's, uh, the, this part focuses on how much of uh, OJ's identity as a black person was basically taken away from him uh, so he could be this superstar because there you can't have... Uh, a black person in a Hertz commercial because no one would care. That's why they had this old lady, old white lady saying, go OJ go when he was running through, running through the airport because you want to make him 
uh, look whiter and um, into the third part it's talking about how many photos of OJ are all around his house which is uh, really weird to begin with but all of the photos that are in his house are of him and his white friends um, so the second part of the documentary goes into uh, his life after football, um, how much he just completely in embraced uh, a white identity, which is um, living in a white part of Los Angeles and um, like playing golf and tennis, these typically white collar white people sports. And like he's asked by his black friends from high school, why are you doing this, OJ? You're, you're, you're a football player, you don't need to play. You don't need to play tennis, and his response is just because I'm OJ, because uh, he's like he's that kind of he's that kind of person. Um, and then the third part goes into uh, the his actual arrest and the murder trial. Um, it starts though with a very extended portion, just talking about uh, the assault by police officers on Rodney King. And if you don't, I was not familiar with this Good. because I'm young. Um. <laughs> that was huge, Corey. I can't tell you like that was that was a huge deal yeah. back in the early nineties. Yeah, and that <clears throat> that kind of sets up uh, for the OJ trial because these are was like four white police officers that got off beating up this uh, black person because he looked like he would be threatening. Um, I mean, on top of the uh, mounting evidence and discreditation of key witnesses in the OJ trial, uh, this this thing where police perhaps wanted, police and the city of Los Angeles wanting to look like they are not, they're not attacking black people. Like, we'll, we'll let, uh, we, we may have made a mistake on this one, but we'll let this black guy go because everyone knows OJ. Um, I feel like that's that's what uh, Ezra Eklund is trying to lay out here. Um, I haven't watched uh, the fourth and fifth parts. I just started this like this weekend, Friday or something. Um, it's like six and a half hours of documentary, so perhaps I should have uh, thought about time management there a little more, but <laughs> it's too late now. Well, it made your list, even though you didn't finish it and crammed it in at the last second, so that says something. Yeah. Um, it's it's really really good. I should have watched this way earlier. Yeah, I I, I really I really want to sit down with this too. But me being me, I want to watch the American Crime Story first. Um, because I'd rather watch the dra dramatization uh, before the documentary. I'm I'm the opposite way. Like I want to know, um, the quote unquote objective story of how it happened before I saw a dramatization. Corey, you watch this? Are you interested? So, isn't there another OJ thing? Yeah, that was the yeah, that's crime, the, American crime. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. With with Cuba Gooden and fucking David Schwimmer. John Travolta. <laughs> yeah, they, that one's called The People vs. OJ. Oh, okay. Named after the trial. So, how many parts is the documentary? So there are five parts. Each of them are about an hour and a half long. Hulu conveniently puts it in three parts. Uh, I say conveniently because when I was watching it on ESPN, uh, it broke, and then I had to go over Hulu, and then I had to figure out where the fuck I actually was, 
in the three part compared to the five part. That doesn't sound convenient at all. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so is it like uh, is it like real footage mixed with like dramatization? No. So OJ Make in America is uh, if you've never watched a thirty for thirty, it's just a documentary series. Explices. Um, Explices real footage back back in that time. There's a lot of like in the first part with interviewers. A, yeah, with interviewers. There's okay. a lot of uh, in the first part. There's a lot of showing him in college and uh, the NFL doing all these uh, crazy OJ plays, and then the second part it's a lot of uh, news footage and uh, other footage of OJ talking about this or that, and a lot of photographs and uh, testimonies from people that knew him. People. Um, people that have studied this case or studied law in general, uh, once we get into the third part, there's some, uh, there's some testimony from people like, uh, one of the prosecutors or one of the defenders was my professor. Uh, I reported on the OJ trial as a, uh, as a beat reporter at Time Magazine at the time. And, um, there's a lot of testimonies from the police police that were involved in uh, in the uh, murder trials and all that stuff and yeah a lot of interviews this must have been a hell of an undertaking i'll add it to the list <laughs> it's a big list yeah it is a big it's list never never shortens all right number number four oj made in america uh cory let's move on you're number four so the other movie I rewatched, I think I would put it at number four, but I'm I'm since Train to Busan is on Chris's list, this other movie is definitely on Chris's list. So Uh-oh. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip that for now. Wait, um, oh I we don't know this for sure, the the, the suspense. Uh, I'm pretty sure. Okay. That one might even be your number one. I don't know. I'll just delay it. (laughs) And if I have to swap it out, I'll swap it out. (laughs) Okay, sounds fair. Uh, All right, so for number four, um, I'll do uh, Midnight Special. Oh, I really wanted to see that one. Have you seen? I don't think Corey's seen it. Uh, I have likely not seen anyone's movies on their lists. (laughs) Um, so Midnight Special is written and directed by Jeff Nichols. He did, um, Mud and, uh, Take Shelter, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen either of those, but Take Shelter is the one that I actively want to see. Cause I, uh, I hear that Michael Shannon performance is incredible. Michael Shannon's so cool. Yeah, he is. I love Michael Shannon. I'll get in, I'll get into that. Um, yeah, Mud's real good. I like Mud. Um, Midnight Special is way better than Mud, though. Well, Matthew McConaughey, so, I mean... He's cool. It's just Midnight Special is more the kind of movie I'm into. So Midnight Special is like John Carpenter cross Steven Spielberg cross, like, Stephen King. Um, this movie has Adam Driver, Chris. Are you going to be okay? does have I don't, Adam I, I, I don't know, dude. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I've seen so many Adam Driver movies because he's in a lot of movies that I, I want to see, and I'm disappointed every time. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes. Patterson is supposed to be good. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I mean, I, I didn't like him as Kylo Ren, so, I mean, I feel like I understand some of your dislike for Adam Driver. Uh, but I think he does an okay job here. I'm sure he's just like he is in every other movie because he's incapable of being a different character. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't seen enough Adam Driver. You might be right. <laughs> um, so this movie also has religious like underpinnings, like the whaling. Uh, but I feel like the Midnight Special is easier... As someone that's not religious, I feel like Midnight Special is easier to get into and easier to uh, understand because uh, the whaling is like very connected. But uh, I think Midnight Special is vague enough that I think it would work for both religious and non-religious types. So um, it's got Michael Shannon in it. He's the main character, the father. Uh, Joel Edgerton is all is uh, also main character. He's uh, what is the word for that? Main character. Like he's like wait protagonist. Wait. No, he's he's like sidekick. Yeah, it's something like that. Sidekick. There's a better <laughs> word for it. <laughs> sidekick works. So it's basically it's about uh, Michael Shannon. Uh, his character's name is Roy, um, and his son, Alton, has special powers. And so a religious cult uh, grew up around Alton. What Alton can do is he gets these, like, divinations from the ether. They're, like, uh, sequences of numbers, and at some point... They were able to figure out some of what these numbers mean. They were like dates, times, longitude, and latitude. Um, and Alton's other power is he can shoot beams of light from his eyes and shoot them into another person. And it basically becomes this transcendent experience for the other person. And that's what the cult grew from. But there's also, um, the numbers that Alton was divining, uh, they were also pertain to government secrets. So not only is a cult after Alton, the, the government is also after Alton. So the movie starts out with, um, like the beginning of the movie, super strong. It starts out with, um, like a newscast, uh, explaining that Alton's been kidnapped, uh, and that these, Two men have kidnapped him, Roy, which is Michael Shannon, and Lucas, which is Joel Edgerton. And then they're there with Alton. And you don't know the relationship yet at that point. Um, and so they're just at a motel, and they figure they have to leave. Uh, so they get in their car, and there's like synth music, and it's a night, and they're driving down the road. And so, uh, that's a, that sounds like scene of the year. It's amazing. And Lucas, uh, he puts on night vision goggles because he's, uh, he's actually a cop and he turns off the headlights in the car and they're just like driving in the dark with no lights and the music. It's really like, which is, 
which ties in to a lot of what this movie does. It's a lot of style and a lot of a lot of visual flair. Um, there's not a lot of exposition or even dialogue. Uh, there are portions of the movie where no one even speaks, uh, and it's because they don't need to. Uh, as the audience, we're given enough just to go on, and the movie stays one step ahead the whole way and just keeps like pushing things along visually and as and as like uh like points of action which change things so i wasn't really familiar that much with michael shannon before i watched this um but like he's got a really powerful uh aura in this movie he only like says what needs to be said and he's very like he's very protective of his son and he'll do anything to uh to keep him safe from the government so like there's a point where they get into a wreck uh and they stop to go see if the other person's okay but then a cop shows up and so Lucas and Roy both pull their guns on the cop and Lucas doesn't want to shoot the cop because he's also a cop but Roy's like, I don't give a shit. We need to leave. I'm not giving up Alton. And it's that kind of tension and that like fatherly like protection. Um, yeah, Michael Shannon is really, really good. Don't, don't take his performance as General Zod in the new Superman movies as any indicator. Michael Shannon is good. <laughs> I don't even, I've only seen that first new Superman movie. I don't even know if he's in that. The Man of Steel? No, he is. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's General Zod. Maybe it was that terrible. Was he a good actor, though? I assume he wasn't, like, suddenly bad at acting. He is... So it's the kind of... I think it's the material. So, you know, you know Anthony Hopkins? When Anthony Hopkins is in kind of a cheesy movie, he goes... He, he plays for the bleachers in that really ridiculous, over-the-top, I'm way too Shakespearean for this Drek type of acting. That's basically how Michael Shannon plays General Zod. He's <laughs> just he, he he knows he's better, and so he he oversells like every sentence. You know, I will defeat Krypton. <laughs> so he's not he's not bad, but he's like you can really tell that he's just kind of playing for the cheap seats. Like, another thing that really works is, like, so Lucas initially helps out Roy because they were, like, old friends. But then, like, through the journey um, to safety, uh, um, he, like, loses his way at one point. Like, should we really be doing this? Why don't we take Alton to a hospital? He, like, he needs professionals to look at him to see... Like, why he can do these mysterious things. Uh, and Roy, like, doesn't care about any of the mystical stuff. Like, he's only in it as a father. Yeah, it's just, like, it harkens back to, like, I feel like, like, 80s style stuff. Um, it's very good. And the ending is fantastic. Like, it, like, another, like, a theme of it, which, uh, ties into, like, the religious stuff is, putting your faith into something unknown, like something you can't understand, something that that's like larger than yourself. And I think it really uh, delivers on that. 
and I, and it being sci-fi enough and you know and not too biblical i think is how it uh walks that line it's very good it's on hbo or at least it was very cool yeah i remember like the like the biggest selling tool of it was it was kind of you know like super 8 um stranger things for the kids um that only remember things of the last year um where where it's the the big homage to the amblin entertainment era of uh 80s films it's way better like, than super 8 <laughs> <laughs> that kind of stuff is like catnip for me i like super 8 uh I, I like love it too. Stranger Things. There, there are I have not watched Super 8, but like it's not a bad movie. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't yeah, seen no, that, Stranger that kind of Things stuff yet. Oh my goodness. I I, a lot of people seem to like it. Dana hates me for I it. I feel like I will like it a lot. Dana hated it? No, Dana hates me for not watching it yet. Oh, well, sounds fair. Yeah. But no, I, I didn't know that this played uh, played more like a, a cult uh like I mean, like, you know, about an, an occult. I didn't, I didn't catch that. I thought it was more like Flight of the Navigator or something like that. Yeah, I was the the cult. Um, they're more front loaded in the movie, and then it's like the government like kind of enters the picture. But there's some there's some pretty like cool mystical stuff. Uh, Corey, could you ever see loving? No, should I? Uh, that's from the same director. That's another one that I missed out on as well. Oh, right. Wait, is that the the one with Joel Egerton that came out this year? Yep. Oh, I didn't know that was the same director. Yeah, apparently. Oh. When I looked it Two up, movies in there. the same year. Busy, busy, busy. I know, right? I feel like Joel Egerton is busy. He's like in a lot of stuff. Yeah, he is. He needs to direct another movie. I want I want another movie like The Gift. That was oh, good. Oh yeah. It was Gift. Good. The end of the gift. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh number four. Big night special. Let's go back some reader lists. Uh Corey, other Corey, third Corey, Modern Rocker. Uh he sent in his top ten. Three got the first five here. Uh number ten. Tickled, number nine, The Witch, number eight, Wiener, number seven, Zootopia, and number six, Arrival. Uh, Chris. Oh, you're going to keep in suspense the top five for later? Oh, boy. Chris, you watch uh, any of those? I I, I have watched two of those, and uh, a third one, I cannot wait for the Blu-ray to be released in two days so that I can finally sit down and watch it. What's that would be th- Arrival. Uh, oh, you haven't seen Arrival yet? No. It's very good. Uh, what, what is Tickled? It is a documentary. Uh, Corey's really big on documentaries. He loves those damn things. He has like seven um, documentaries it, in his top five. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's a documentary about tickling. Okay. Um, and like the, the therapeutic uh, uses of being tickled. Weird. Oh no! Wait, here we go. I brought it up. A tickling competition. I you have endurance so, tickling. Endurance tickling. Endurance tickling. <laughs> See, it's pretty. It's pretty ridiculous. That, that's another movie that was uh, put out by uh, Ma- Magnolia Pictures. So okay. I saw a lot of that in my my news feeds. 
throughout the year. But A, it's a documentary about tickling, and B, it's a documentary about tickling, so I haven't gotten around to it. Um, <laughs> but that's really cool. On to number threes with my number three. My number three is uh, directed by Theodore Melfi. It is Hidden Figures, the story of yeah. uh, three three black women who who uh, in NASA became a, an integral part of sending John Glang to space and eventually uh, landing on the moon for the first time. Um, there are there are a few problems with the uh, the changes the movie made to the real. The real deal, but I think the uh, the base the base of this movie, the, the movie's message that uh, anyone anyone black woman, white woman, uh, anyone can do what they want as long as they have the talent and the opportunity. So this movie follows uh, Catherine Johnson, uh, well, Catherine Goebel, who is later Catherine Johnson. Um, she is a mathematician, a genius mathematician who uh, works as a computer, which is what they just call people that did computer-like computations uh, back in the 60s. Um, she works as a computer at NASA, and uh, when uh, Kevin Costner, the director of the space task group, needed a very good mathematician, they call on... Uh, Catherine Goebel, played by, uh, I don't know how to say the first name, Tara G. Henson? I don't know. Uh, well, maybe this is another Maybe this is another Taraji? thing. Taraji? <laughs> Homage. Homage. Gosh. <laughs> um, anyway. What is the character's name that you're trying to say? Uh, the, the person's name oh, is name. Taraji Henson. T-A-R-A-J-I. Yeah, Taraji sounds about yeah, right. That's what Wikipedia says. I don't know. Homage sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> um, she plays uh, Catherine Goble, who uh, is brought on to this task force to provide the computations for... Uh, they, they, may, they say making new math, because they know, uh, they know of no equation where if you're circling around the Earth... And then need to go back to Earth. You know, uh, in other words, in other words, rotating, rotating around, and then going into a parabola. They had, and land in a specific right. spot. And they had no no equation for that um, until Catherine Goebel remembers this thing from like 40,000 BC when some guy that probably hung out with Socrates figured something out. Was that Euler's method or something? Oh, it was something ridiculous. Let's see if Wikipedia says it. I don't it. remember. Wikipedia doesn't say it. Or if it does, then I'm skipping too fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then she she is friends, uh, Catherine Goebel, with uh, Dorothy Vaughn and Mary Jackson, played by Octavia Spencer and Janelle Monet, respectively. And Lex, let's just say Janelle Monet has been fantastic in the two movies that she has been in this year. Yep. Yeah, but uh, Octavia Spencer is another mathematician, but she also plays the role of a supervisor without actually getting supervisor pay or uh, supervisor compensation or anything like that uh, because she is black, and that is, that is it. Um, Mary Jackson is an engineer who gets pulled on to 
trying to design the thing that will actually send Jong Link space. Um, but she is not allowed to do that unless she takes some classes at an all-white high school. So there's this fantastic scene where she appeals to the uh, the pride of the judge that says, well, uh, Brown versus Board of Education may have passed, but here in Virginia... Wait, where are they in Virginia? That sounds right. Uh, it's in Virginia, North Carolina. I am terrible at uh, everything. Arlington? Uh, they're in Hampton, Virginia. Hampton. Yes. I do not know how close that is to Arlington, but who knows. Only Arlington I know of is in Texas, so... <laughs> There's Arlington, Virginia. Anyway, she uh, she appeals to the pride of this judge in Virginia, who says Brown versus Board of Education may have passed in the in the last however many years, but Virginia is still a segregated school area. Um, she says, uh, "How many times tonight are you going to be the first? You're the first to graduate, first in your family to graduate from college, first in your family to do this, first in your family to do this." Uh, you want to be the first in your family to let a black woman go to an all-white high school and take these classes. Um, that's how that's how she gets in. And this is paralleled um, by the fact that her supervisor is a Polish Jew who escaped uh, escaped Nazi Germany with his family and now is working on the space station as well, which like you wouldn't expect that uh, a mere 30 years ago in the... Uh, in the context of the movie, but here they both are, a black woman uh, being an engineer and this Polish Jew leading a crew of engineers. And then there is Dorothy Vaughn, Octavia Spence's character, who straight up steals a book on uh, on Fortran. Gotta do what you gotta yeah, do. On Fortran, because it is in the white section of the library. And when her kids ask, should you... Or were you allowed to steal that book? And it's like, listen here, I pay taxes, so this is my book. <laughs> uh, she learns Fortran, which is what the IBM computer um, that they brought in is going to calculate. So the IBM computer does like, you know, it does things at a exponential rate faster than any human could. Um, but they learn how to program it, or, or Octavia Spencer learns how to program it, and Octavia uh, Spencer's character, I should say. Um, and she teaches all the rest of the black computers there, which is, say, not like actual computers, but the other black women that are, they have the job tackle computers. Um, she teaches them Fortran, and they walk into, there's the fantastic thing where they, they walk into the, uh, the all white area and say, alright, here is, Here's the new crew, two white guys who have no idea what they're doing, and this giant crew of black women who are uh, rolling them under the table with their knowledge of Fortran. Oh, the one part that I did not, <clears throat> I did not like about this. Um, there's a scene where Catherine, Catherine's character, not Catherine's character. I'm back at speaking. Catherine Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> she uh, she is constantly running back and forth from. Uh, her her job where wherever it is to her old place, which is a 45 minute walk away, in a skirt and high heels because she needs to use the restroom and there is no restroom for uh, for colored people in her area. So she just uh, straight up starts yelling at Kevin Costner's character 
saying, uh, basically, excuse me for having to pee uh, a couple of times a day because there's no restrooms for me here. But Kevin Costner's character, who I'm, sh I'm sure the studio or the director or whoever wanted to make uh, the white person seem way less than they are or way less terrible than they were, he uh, tears down the sign that says colored only restrooms and says we all feed the same color, which did not happen. Uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. That white savior thing yeah. is no good. And I think like that where uh, Dorothy Octavia Spencer's character, mm -hmm. where she steals the Fortran book. Mm -hmm. Like, if they're not gonna let her rent the damn book, yeah, steal the book. Like, you can't expect the oppressed to follow the oppressor's rules. Right. So. And what actually happened? Catherine. Catherine not ha running all the way to that bathroom and running back, she should have just used the damn bathroom. And that's what she instead did of, in real life. That's what Catherine Godson yeah. did. Uh, but they had to create this scene where... Uh, you got to make the white people seem a little more lovely. Yeah. What I do like about this movie is uh, Jim Parsons, who plays a the head engineer in the Space Cast group, he is a complete dick, which confirms, he all, is. confirms all the feelings that I want to have about uh, his character in The Big Bang Theory. <laughs> That's that exactly motherfucker how I feel. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. Uh, all right. I'll, I'll see if it's on like on NBC or something one day. I don't. Yeah. I don't have NBC, so. It's really, <laughs> Fuck that dude. It's really, really good though. Um, Mahershala Ali plays the future husband of Catherine Goebel, who goes. He's really Johnson. good in the movies I've seen yeah, him in. He is fucking fantastic. Uh, him and Janelle Monae are. In both Are, Hidden Figures yep. and in Moonlight, which, spoilers, I'll be talking about that later. Um, That's not a spoiler. Yeah. We already knew yeah. that. Um, and they're they're fantastic in both of these. Like, after I saw Mahershala Ali in both of these movies, I just wanted to seek out everything that he's ever done. Oh, and he's also in uh, Luke Cage as Cottonmouth, and he's fantastic in that. Coo, 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 coo. Yep. Number three, Hidden Figures. Uh, fucking Jim Parsons, though. Like, Jesus. Like, that. You, way, way to kill the high. I'm sitting here listening <laughs> to you, and I'm like, you know, I heard this movie was great. This really sounds good. Oh, that scene's unfortunate. Yeah, Hollywood. Jim Parsons is in it. Man, fuck. <laughs> it's a, even with the white savior and Jim Parsons, which I feel like he plays a pretty good asshole. Yeah. Um, he's good because I. He gets shut down <laughs> for being an asshole. Well, he gets what he yeah. deserves. Okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie. Yeah. It's very powerful. Yeah. And it's like the, these... This is so, and I hate to say important, but it is very important to have these kind of movies where uh, where little, little girls, uh, regardless of their skin color, have these have these figures that have done so much for the world. Yep. If only we could have the press in like that. Yeah. If only Sheen Godzilla was real. <laughs> they, I don't know if you watched that yet, Chris. I did. I, okay. I did. The, because in there, the there's a lady that's planning on becoming the president of the United States. So yeah, she was pretty cool. Cutthroat reporter, terrible person. I will be president. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> I believe you. All right, Hidden uh, Figures. Uh, Corey, you're number three. Uh, I'm gonna have to delay again. I don't. 
Oh boy. I don't want to. So you you picked hidden figures. That would have been on my list. <laughs> uh, I there were so pick... many good movies this year. There, yes. I'm not gonna pick this one yet. I'm not gonna pick this one yet. Um, let's talk about this one. I bet no one else has seen this. And I I did what I did with Gone Girl for this movie, which I'm not happy about, but it was worth it. Um, so. Was that the first podcast? Uh, must have been. With Gone Girl? Right? Yeah, that was the first year we did this. Yeah, so for that one, Gone Girl wasn't out on disc yet, but I needed to see it before the podcast, so I bought a digital copy, which was $15. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so for this movie, it comes out... Uh, like in two weeks, but I was like, ah, you know, I need to see it. So I spent the fifteen dollars. Nocturnal Animals. Yep. Uh, oh, I want to see that movie so bad. Nocturnal Animals. Michael Shannon strikes again. Well, don't forget the other people in that movie. Yeah, I know. At Amy Adams strikes again. And Jake Gyllenhaal in there. The, the yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal. Oh, this is uh, the movie where uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson came out of nowhere to win the Supporting Actor Globe. Yeah. The what? The Golden Globes. Best Supporting Actor for the Golden Globes. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Like, he's good? What? Like, he was he was what made the Godzilla movie terrible. <laughs> um. <laughs> All right, sorry. Wait, Please. what character was he? He was uh, Ray Marcus, leader of the gang. Oh, he. Oh, he looks totally different. <laughs> I know who he is now. Okay. Yeah, he. He got best supporting actor. Yeah, he got the best supporting actor of the Globes, uh, according to Vegas betting polls. You could not even bet on him to win that award. Uh, he plays a real. <laughs> he plays a real piece of garbage in this movie. <laughs> All right, so Nocturnal Animals. Uh, it's by, uh, directed by, and I think I guess it's based on a novel as well. Uh, I didn't know that. Directed and adapted by Tom Ford, who also did A Silent Man, which I haven't seen, which is supposed to be very good. Um, but Nocturnal Animals is like uh, a neo-noir film, and it's actually two stories in one. Like, there's two simultaneous stories happening. So there's Nocturnal Animals... The movie, which you're watching, which has Amy Adams, and then there's Nocturnal Animals, the novel, inside of the movie, which you're also watching. Did I mention how bad I want to see this movie? Like, I'm so jealous of you, Corey. uh, So, it's about how um, Amy Adams, her character, uh, Susan... She's unhappy with her life due to she she thinks she's not creative. And because of that, while she was in school, she switched from art to art history. And at one point, she didn't want to be bourgeois like her mother, but she essentially becomes her mother. Uh, and it really bothers her because. She, oh, oh, man. All right, I'll get back to that. Uh, so, 
So it's basically about how she's unsatisfied with like she she runs an art gallery with uh her husband of like 20 years. Their marriage isn't great. He's like sleeping with someone else. Uh she just doesn't know what to do with herself. And so uh one day she gets this draft novel from her ex-husband. And her ex-husband is Jake Gyllenhaal. And he was aspiring to be a writer. And that him being a writer is what broke up their marriage. And so when she gets this novel, like she gets a lot of feelings back from that time because he's uh, finally completed something and she likes the book. So, okay. Take you know time. what? I don't even know if I should say anything about the beginning. Mm, no, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that for you. You, you can enjoy the beginning all to yourself. Oh boy. Um, so while she's reading the book, um, it, it, it visualizes like the movie basically just becomes the book. And the book is about, uh, so Jake Gyllenhaal, the writer, Edward, uh, places himself as the main character, Tony, of the book. And it's basically about how the Tony and his, uh, his wife, which looks like Amy Adams, uh, and they have a daughter, and they're, uh, going on a family trip, and they leave at night because their daughter wants them to leave at night. Uh, because she wants to go on a night drive, or, you know, drive during the night. And they're like in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and there's, uh, two cars driving slowly in both lanes, so they can't pass. So they get a little passive aggressive with the driving and they have, and they get one of the cars to move out of the way. But then, so Aaron Taylor Johnson is one of the guys in one of the cars. The other car just like leaves at some point. I don't know. It was kind of weird. Uh, but the main car, which becomes a source of conflict, uh, Aaron Taylor Johnson is like a trailer hillbilly hick kind of guy. So eventually they stop, uh, they like are banging their cars together and like the, uh, his character Ray wants them to stop the car because he's mad that they damaged his car even though he started it. And he's like, oh, no, he, like he makes it seem like this is like, uh, like they're doing it for routine reasons. Like, oh, we need to stop, call the police and like report an accident or whatever. But actually, Ray is just a terrible piece of shit. And essentially him and his buddies steal, uh, capture Tony's wife and kid and drive off in his car, in Tony's car. Uh, and then so, Tony is left with one of the guys from their posse and Ray's car. And the guy has Tony drive Ray's car to their hideout. And then they, and then he has Tony get out of the car and leaves Tony in the middle of the desert. And then from there, things happen. So when, what ends up happening is the, the book movie and then the movie movie sort of 
reflect on each other. Uh, it's this is essentially a revenge film, and so the the writer Jake Gyllenhaal Edward is like using the book as for as catharsis for how weak he feels and how weak Amy Adams character Susan made him feel and not and like being discouraging while he was you know trying to write a novel uh, way back when and so he's using this book as catharsis and then Amy Adams is using this book as like oh you know the the it's very graphic and affecting it's a very good novel. It's rekindling like old relationship flames. Like maybe there's something there still, even though it's been like 20 years. You know, maybe I can get, you know, find happiness in Edward again. And so it, it, the way they frame, like the way, like the, the, the book part of the movie is like very graphic and like violent sort of revenge but then the like what what someone might think of as, as like petty revenge of like i don't know like you stop talking to someone because they wronged you somehow you have that visceral like um reaction like sometimes you want to hurt someone for something that they do to you but we don't hurt people because that's fucking messed up the other type of revenge is more like, I don't know what the word would be for that, but it's much more personal and like psychological. Like if you just like stop talking to someone, like you may think it's petty, but like in some ways, maybe that's worse than if you physically hurt them because you're actually like denying their existence by just like forgetting about them. So it, it explores these themes of revenge and I feel like you could also, depending on your perspective, you could also view this movie as like forgiveness and closure. But by the end of the movie, it just felt like brutal revenge to me. It, it didn't feel good in like a good way. I mean, movie finishes. You don't feel good. I, I need to see this movie. I approve. Um, and Michael <laughs> Shannon, he, he plays a cop, uh, in the book. Uh, and he's just, fantastic he helps uh tony with the case with his missing wife and daughter and uh he's just it's just so much style aura and michael shannon-ness it's very good i think that's uh it comes out i think on february 28th two two more weeks so long you'll you'll make it (laughs) i usually wait until movies are on sale anyway Though I realize that uh-huh. I don't have Moonlight pre-ordered yet, so I did that while you were talking. February twenty-first, so technically one week, nine days. Yeah. Nice. All right, number three. It's very good. Eternal Animals. Uh, Chris, you are number three. Round out. <sighs> okay, I'll go easy on us this time because I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so I'll just. Just do one movie, and also because there isn't another horror movie that came out this year that uses a primary color in its name. Oh, I know <laughs> what this is. It's Green Room, bitches. 
Um, Green Room is a movie that I have been yelling at Corey all year to see, I know, and I, I think know. he keeps forgetting. I do. You haven't seen <laughs> no. it? It's it's directed by Jeremy Salmir, um, who a couple years ago directed a movie called Blue Ruin. Uh, I haven't seen that one. I have I the Blu-ray. I haven't Ray. seen it either. Oh, you have it? Yeah, I, I bought it, it like the, the instant it came out because it was like 12 bucks, and I heard it was really good, but I never popped it in. Uh, but Green Room, I had to see the instant I got the opportunity to, um, which was when it came out on video at the end of the summer. <laughs> um, so Green Room... It's one of the final performances of the underrated actor of our times, Anton Yelkin. R.I.P. R.I.P. Also stars uh, Maybe from <laughs> Arrested <laughs> Development and and Sir Patrick Stewart. Nice. Oh, that's right. I forgot about and that. This is probably the most brutal movie of the year. Um, this shit is fucked up. So the basic, the basic idea, um, Anton Yelkin... Maybe and a couple other people. They're in this. Uh, <laughs> they're they're in a a hardcore punk band. So you know, right now we're already speaking Chris's language, and this super poor hardcore punk punk band is uh, traveling across the country playing shows um, just to fill up their van so that they can get to the next city. They make no money. Nobody knows who they are. Um, they have this one gig that was put on for them by a local radio underground. Absolutely nobody listens to it. Um, disc jockey, who, if I'm not mistaken, was the Shermanator from American Pie. Um, I'll have to, I'll, I'll have to look. I don't remember what his name is, so I don't know if there's a way for me to, to verify that. Uh, but anyway, so they put on the show and like nobody showed up, so they didn't make any money. Um, so they're kind of pissed off at this disc jockey. So he calls his brother who's in the next town over and is, they're able to, um, squeeze them into this big show that they're doing in a couple of days. So they drive over to the next town. They get to the bar that they're going to perform and it's fucking straight up nothing but Nazis. Um, the, the whole, uh, the, 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 the bar itself is filled with Nazi uh, paraphernalia. It's run by Nazis. Um, they're extremely hostile because, well, they're fucking Nazis. Um, and it leads to one of the, the best scenes of the year for me. Um, when they get up on stage, they're talk, you know, they're like, <laughs> they're talking, they're like, what, what song do we play? What, what's our set list? And then they get up on stage and there's all these, you know, scum punks just fucking neo-Nazi trash, and they bust out the dead Kennedys, Nazi punks, fuck off. Um, which is absolutely perfect, because the song is about the Nazis that were in the early 80s hardcore punk scene that, you know, the, the actual artists were like, we're not talking to you. You are the bad guy. You're the enemy. You are so fucking stupid. You don't understand the message that we're trying to say. So fuck off. Um, so that's what they open with and it's, it's really great. Um, but then after the show, they are getting ready to leave, pack up their stuff into their van. And, uh, I think it was maybe she forgot something or somebody forgot, forgot something. So, so this is the other movie I rewatched. And <laughs> this is the one that you were pretty sure I would talk about. Oh yeah. I thought this would be higher though. I'm surprised. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
Yeah, she forgets her phone in the in the green room, the, the, which was there like the the dressing room. It's a it's a single room for all the different bands to to hang out in before the show. Um, so after they're you know getting ready to leave, I'm like oh shit, I forgot my phone. They go back in and they see that the next band, which is just a bunch of Nazis, murdered somebody, and well the Nazis can't let them leave after them witnessing a murder. So what, what now progresses for the next hour and change is they're locked. They've locked themselves in the green room. Uh, Patrick Stewart plays, you know, the chief Nazi senior Hitler himself. (laughs) Um, And they're, the Nazis are trying to get at the punk band and murder them so that they can, keep this from getting out because the, the Nazis, the punk band who, com- excuse me, who committed the murder are part of the good old boy system. So they need to protect their own. Um, so, cause if the cops start snooping around, they'll find out that they're, they're Nazis. They run a drug cartel that they have been murdering people up and down the coast. You know, these are really bad dudes. Um, and it is, it's extreme. It's so, pulse pounding and thrilling, but you're just watching in absolute fucking horror because some really fucked up shit goes down. I can't explain, express this enough. Um, the cover of the, uh, the, the main artwork is Anton Yelkin bent over in a hallway holding a giant ass machete. Um, so Anton Yelkin and machete, Please remember those words for when you watch this movie because you will not believe your goddamn eyes. <laughs> and um, I don't want to say too much more, but um, Film Crit Hulk um, is a big fan of this movie, and he did a huge piece about how this film is a rarity because it it, it, it may have a simple plot um, that it executes extremely well, but every single character is filled with agency. Um, every, er, it, you know, you don't know everything about the characters, so you can't quite say they're these full-fleshed, multidimensional characters, but they're not archetypes and they're not stereotypes. They're still real people. You just don't know anything about them except for once you start following their story. And they all have their purposes for committing the actions that they do throughout the course of the film for for good or for ill, and uh, that 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 sense of agency um, implants a ton of power into these characters, and you you want them to succeed so badly, and it will it will break your heart um, as you watch this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's extremely good. It's it it is extremely brutal and you you it will stick with you it's a movie that i keep thinking about and after you know the way that things have been going lately it turns out that this movie is much more prescient than it first yeah. seemed um it it really it seemed like it was just this really good thriller about you know terrible nazis trying to hurt our you know noble hardcore punk band um, but it actually it's got a lot more layers to that. And we're starting to see some of those layers play out in real life. And damn, son. Um, but, yeah, no, 
everybody should watch Green Room. It's really, 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 really good. This is not on my list because I wanted to talk about a horror movie. Um, like we're, we're actually talking it about my top five for real, um, basically. And yeah, rest in peace, Anton Yelkin. I wish you could have done more. He was actually really good in that Fright Night remake. You know, Star Trek, I could give or take, whatever, but Green Room, like, he, if anything showed uh, so much promise uh, for what he could have done uh, in future movies, Green Room exemplifies it tremendously. And uh, Imogen Poots. She uh, is plays, so good. She is incredible in this movie. I, I also, I love her anime haircut. Just like Ramona Flowers. No, it it reminds me of like uh, Serial Experiments Lane. Like she's got like two like long like pieces at the front, but the rest of her hair is short. One one side's longer than the other, which is kind of like the Ramona Flowers anime haircut. But yeah, no, Corey. So I bought it while you were talking. It's ten dollars on Amazon. So so this was weird for me because. Before rewatching Green Room, I would have said it was probably number one, but then I rewatched it and it didn't have as much impact that it did the first time, which sort of got me thinking about well, if it if if I didn't get the same experience or like as powerful of an experience or like some equivalent, does that does that like retroactively like make the movie worse or? The movie wasn't as good as I originally thought, or, and I think the answer I came to was, no, the movie is still fantastic. It's just I was in a different time and place when I first watched it. Yeah, and when you when you first when you see things for the first time, you don't know what's going to happen. Like Green Room is not like this big huge movie that everybody was talking about, so you might have caught a spoiler here or two or somebody talking about it. Like it, it, you go into it, you pretty much go into it blind, um, and that in and of itself adds an element to it because it's it's completely surprise you know the the element of surprise if you will like you just like whoa i didn't i did not expect that um i think that's a part of it i also think so i saw this in theater somehow my theater was like we should play green room and i'm like uh you don't normally play limited releases especially one like this so and, my th- my theater here played trailers for it and they didn't even have it like actually show it. It was rude. So with the with the buzz and with like hearing like Patrick Stewart like read the screenplay and was like terrified after reading it and like immediately agreed to do it. Uh, so I was like, all right, I need to see this. And this was also a month after my cat Levy died and I was really in the mood for some depressing shit. And I feel like, and, you know, I was at a movie theater, which is very dark. You know, I watched this this morning. It was like a 6 a.m. It was still a little dark, but, you know, the movie theater's bigger and whatever. So I feel I feel like when I watched it then, it was like there are reasons why, you know, watching it now, I might have a different experience. And that's not a bad thing. I wouldn't say so at all. Yeah. But they, they, this way, you 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 were gonna have this at like number one, huh? Yeah, that's it. Oh boy. But then, but then, which I I won't say anything yet. But yeah, this is gonna be number. This is gonna be number one. But yeah, 
I'm, I moved some stuff around. <laughs> I also got a number. So I, th- I think I know what your number one is. And th- this other movie hasn't shown up yet, so maybe this is your number two. I don't know. We'll see. No spoilers. We'll see. We'll see. All right. Uh, let's take a short break, and then we'll be back for our number twos and our number ones. Whoop, whoop. Oh, wait. Uh, wrap up number three, Green Room. Uh, back half of Corey's list. Top half of Corey's list. Um, number five, The Handmaiden. Number four, Tower. Number three, Manchester by the Sea. Number two, Moonlight. And number one, OJ Made in America. I have a feeling OJ Made in America would be uh, higher, even higher on my list if I finish it. What could the last two parts be? I mean, he's in jail right now. Uh, <laughs> not relating to the murder case, though. <laughs> uh, did you? I'm so jealous of Corey, though. He saw The Handmaiden. Uh, no. Oh, ask if I you have The Handmaiden on Blu-ray. If you guys have seen The Handmaiden. I really want to see it. <laughs> Wait, you wait, can, uh, what region did you get that Blu-ray? Because it's only I DVD the, here. The Canada has a Blu-ray, so I was like, thank you, and I bought it <laughs> nice. from Amazon Canada. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Park Chan-wook. Um, I've seen all, every one of his movies except for his first film, JSA, and his newest film, The Handmaiden. Park Chan-wook is incredible. Uh, what is this tower? <laughs> it, is a, it is a documentary. About the 66 shootings <laughs> at the University of Texas at Austin. Of course, you oh, can see that. Yeah, the clock tower. I uh, do not even know about this. I saw a quick blurb on it uh, a little bit ago. Well, I mean, both the movie and the shooting. Oh, oh, oh. Well, so in almost every TV show and movie in existence, <laughs> they they probably have a shooter in a clock tower. That's that's all from this. Uh, yeah. Well, all right. Uh, uh, there was an episode of Buffy that was basically this incident really? as well. Which season? Yeah. Uh, shoot. Two or three. It was the dude Jonathan for the from season six. Uh, Jonathan. It, it was one. It, it was one of the two or three episodes that he was in before he became the main villain in season six. Uh, I I didn't watch the first few seasons at all, and then we really skipped around in season off? three, so I might not have seen it. Oh. It, uh, Kate, Kate has encyclopedic knowledge on Buffy. She said it was the episode where Buffy can hear everybody's thoughts. Oh, uh, I vaguely remember that, maybe. Well, anyway, for reals now, break time. We will be back to count down tears and ones. Countdown. Our number twos and our number ones. Um, Corey, let's start us off. Number two. Uh, <laughs> so much pressure you feel. I can feel that pressure. I want to just ask and be like, is this your number two? <laughs> just go for it. If it is, we have a celebration. Oh, shit. I th- your number one has to be your number one. Like, there's no, there's no way. Unless, unless there's something even better than that, but that doesn't seem possible. I have, uh, <laughs> I have, uh, either said or dropped hints on what my number one and number two are throughout the podcast. 
I can only think of one of them. Oh, crud. My brain. Uh, all right. I'll, okay. put, I'll put this as number two. You wouldn't put this better than this other movie. There's no way. <laughs> we'll see. The, 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 the other movie's not even on my list. So, well, I mean, it's further, it's much, much further down. All right. For number two, I'll do The Autopsy of Jane Doe. That is not on my list, though it oh. was it was it was attempt for you know like can I put this at number five? Okay. Can I pair it with another guy? I thought about pairing it with uh with another one on my list, but I figured that that wouldn't be appropriate. And okay. <laughs> All right then, mystery. I only know one of your other movies. Oh shit. All right. Uh. I have to say, the only reason I knew to watch this movie is because I was creeping on Chris's letterbox. (laughs) (laughs) When when I spent three days and logged the 200-some-odd movies I had watched this year over the course of three days. Is that what you did? (laughs) Yeah. So I I totally, like, wasn't feeling the vibe of writing the reviews on Letterboxd, but there were some movies I had watched that I wanted to write about. So I, I stagnated. And, like, I literally... I spent three days updating from, like, the beginning of April. Every movie I had seen from the beginning of April... Until that time, I had been writing everything down on my phone, so I kept track. <laughs> okay. All right, so I didn't even know what to expect going into this movie, and it kind of starts off, like, really strongly with a... Um, all right, let, let, hold on. It's directed by uh, the guy who did Troll Hunter. Which the I only seen. the only found footage movie that I honestly liked, like I was just like I like that movie unequivocally. The only one. Uh, apparently, he was like, "I want to do a horror movie. Someone find me a script." So they found him this script, and he really liked it. So he made this movie, uh, and it's got Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox as a son father pair. Uh, so it starts out, it sets the stage for the movie with a multiple homicide, very brutal in this family house. Like, the cops don't really know what happened. It looks like the family members were, like, turned on each other and they all killed each other. But that's not the weird part. The weird part is that they found a corpse buried under clay in the basement and it's pristine and there's no identification. So, uh, Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox, Austin and Tommy, they run a mortuary. And so the, uh, the sheriff takes this body to them and wants them to do an emergency autopsy to figure out who this person is, so when he has to explain it to the press tomorrow morning, how they found a Jane Doe in this multiple homicide house, that he has some answers. A large part of the movie is like is like a procedural. It feels, I mean, I'm not an expert on autopsies, but it feels like a very like in depth and like clinical even like the camera work is clinical 
like autopsy. You're, you're actually watching them perform the autopsy yeah. step by step. Step by step. And it's, it's like for like someone that's like, like has like a thirst for science like I do, who like goes on to YouTube and watches SciShow and, you know, Space Time and Vsauce and all these things and is just enamored with science. Like the way they do the autopsy is like very captivating. And they're going step by step, and like the relationship between Brian Cox and Emil Hirsch's characters like feels realistic and like grounded. Like they're actually like father and son, and like uh, Emil Hirsch's character, he's only like a medical like what was it like practitioner or something? Like he's not an actual like mortician. Like he's in training. Uh, it's like a family business, but he really doesn't want to continue the business because it's morbid. Uh, but like through while they're dissecting her and like examining her and like trying to figure out what happened, like like that dynamic between them, like Emil, like like they're they're recording it and they like. Uh, like uh, it, it's a woman and she's in her twenties and like Brian Cox corrects him and be like appears to be in her twenties. Like it's very like specific. And so things get weird when things the, just start happening. <laughs> the problems with the corpse, like, like the, her, the outside of her body is pristine, but the inside of her body is terribly, terribly damaged, uh, like fire damage and like, mutilation her wrists and ankles are not just broken but shattered her her bones are shattered but there's no outside indication very weird stuff and you know they're but they keep going along with it like there has to be an explanation like they take a very like real approach even though things just keep getting weirder and when things just go off the rails like supernaturally like the reactions from them like it's like there's a there's a scene early on that kind of uh illustrates it uh what happens later in that um emil hirsch's girlfriend they were going to go to the movie before you know jane doe showed up and so before they were about to leave you know she wanted to look at the corpses and so one of the corpses she looks at has a bell tied around his ankle, and uh, Brian Cox's character, Tommy, freaks her out by telling her the story that they would put bells on the corpse's legs to make sure they were dead. Uh, and then they shake his leg, uh, and you know she freaks out. And so later on, when maybe a corpse is walking around and there's a bell ringing... Like, they don't want to believe that it's true, because how could that possibly be true? But, like, the face, like, the horror on their face and, like, the realization of, like, what's going on is, like, it just feels, like, so right. Like, it's not exaggerated. And then it, oh, it... You should stop there, man. There's a, there's a point where when you realize what's happening, it's, like confounding it's incredible and the way it ends is just excellent it's amazing it is amazing it's a it's a great movie um the thing that blows my mind i don't understand how this wasn't 
widely released, why this That's, wasn't yeah, I don't... put out in the theaters, 2,000, 3,000 theaters, you know, whenever month they felt like it, I don't care. You know, it hit VOD in December, like have it go out in theaters in December. Like this yeah. is, it is exceptionally made. The story is really interesting and I think um, very clever. The performances from Emil Hirsch and Brian Cox is stupendous. And it feels mainstream, like it, unlike It Follows and The Babadook and everything from previous years where they're like these really great ideas and great movies, but they don't hit it off quite right with the general audience. This, I felt from the, in it, the minute I saw this movie, um, when I went to the Telluride Horror Show Festival, this feels like it's as good as those movies, but has the appeal for the general population. This should have been in front of everybody's eyeballs, but it just quietly got released on VOD. I don't understand how that happened. I don't know. And then the Blu-ray like doesn't come out till May, like which is a yeah. long time. But I, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know who 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 owned the distribution for this. I didn't pay attention, but it just blows my mind how the, the, it feels like this release was fumbled. This could have been a bigger thing. It's fantastic. It's very like oh, like even when things get weird, like. Like to where you could be like, because everything else is so grounded, you could be like, oh, that's dumb. But they sell it, like, especially Brian Cox, like, they sell it so well that you can't help but just give it, the movie the benefit of the doubt. It's amazing. And the, the, all right. Ophelia Lovabond, if that's how you pronounce her name, she's the corpse. Like, she's just a corpse. And she doesn't do anything. I know they didn't put the, no prop. It's it's an actual person sitting there, not moving for an hour and, and a half. How incredible! And and she's terrifying. She doesn't do anything, and she's terrifying. <laughs> she just sits there or lays there. It's amazing. Indeed. I don't remember if I ever heard of this movie. I mean, I probably did because Chris, you told me about it, but I don't remember. Yeah, you commented, or Dana commented, when I tweeted about it after I saw it at the, the Telluride Horror Show. Um, but I think that, that was it. Like, I didn't, I didn't really, like, push on it or anything. I just, that movie was incredible. Um, and, and let it be. <laughs> so. Right. Uh, number two, Autopsy of Jane Doe. Chris, I'll give you number two. What you got? All right, uh, I need, I need I to know what this is. <laughs> All right, I'm actually, I'm actually gonna double feature it again. Oh wow! Ho- hopefully, I don't talk too much, but I'm gonna double feature it. It's a combination of my actual number two. Can okay, I go to the grocery store? My, talk. No, you're fine. <laughs> <laughs> and my actual, I like number ten, uh, but they're thematically related, and I'm gonna call my number two raw, raw woman power. It's. <laughs> There are two films that are very strong feminist portraits that talk talk about how society um, is constantly oppressing women and how they feel every time a woman speaks out, it must be something supernatural or something evil. And there are two very stylistically different approaches. One is a very somber horror that is 
genuinely terrifying. The other one is extremely comedic. Um, and I'm talking about the witch and the love witch. Okay. So, all right. You're going to, yeah, I, I saw the witch as well and I did not like it at all. No, not at all. Goodness. I don't know. I, I don't really, I don't get it. Like so many other people like are in love with it and I'm just like, what? But the love witch, I can get behind you on the love witch. The love witch was so funny. <laughs> well, ever. All right, you you'll probably get into it. I'll jump in later when you start talking about the love witch. All right. Well, let's let's do the love witch first. This is okay. um my actual lower on my list. I put it at like my real number 10 or something, which puts it at my number 7 horror movie of the year or something. <laughs> um so it's uh it's a film by a uh, director Anna Biller. It's uh, her third feature, but nobody's ever seen her other movies. Like, I, I never even heard of her until The Love Witch. Um, and so the film functions on a couple of different levels, but at the highest level, it is a pure pastiche of early 1970s horror movies. Um, so anyone who follows me or cares about what kind of movies I normally watch, I've been spending the last few years watching a ton of 70s horror movies um, that are really small in scope. Uh, one of the more recent kicks has been uh, regional horror films, like, you know, films made by nobodies. It's the only movie they ever starred in, directed in, or wrote that was funded by someone's brother's cousin, and it was, you know, small town Texas or whatever. Like there's actually a movie that I feel um, very strongly influenced the love, Witch. it's called Mark of the witch. It was a, some small Texas town. Um, just a bunch of people got together and they made a movie. Um, a lot of those movies aren't actually very good uh, because they're, they're, they're super limited. They're, they're amateur uh, films by amateur actors and directors and cinematographers um, they, they are have their own entertainment value, and they are there. There are tons of them that are actually really good, but the the general takeaway is, wow, that was not made very well. Um, <laughs> you know, you can watch it and be like, wow, I love that character, I love that story, but you really can't get across the amateur um, sensibilities that are behind making this film. So, the Love Witch is a prestige of those types of seventies movies. So for all intents and purposes, the movie takes place in the seventies. It uses actual film. Um, it's a faded technicolor film style that mirrors, uh, the stock footage from the early seventies. Everyone is in seventies fashion. Uh, the talk is very seventies. And then you also start getting into, Oh, well that was edited weirdly. Or, wow, that person is acting not very well. And it's very jarring for modern audiences, but it's yeah. very much it's very much 100 percent how these 70s movies actually are. <laughs> at, at the beginning of the movie, when she's in the car and it, it's I don't know what you call that, but the the like moving the, the background green screen. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I first started watching it, I'm like, oh, this looks terrible. And it, it took a bit, but eventually I was like, oh, wait, no, that's the whole point. Yes. Um, and, and it's not really like it's it. So it, 
a lot of people like they can take the wrong message from it. You know, oh, it's trying to be terrible for irony's sake. It's like no, it's it's very loving to these old ass movies yeah. that were that were made poorly. It's not ironic. It's not tongue in cheek. It's hey, I genuinely have affection for these type of movies. I'm gonna make one. And so the the core concept is you have the uh, the main character whose name is Elaine. She moves to a new town after a bad breakup, and the apartment she moves into was pre-furnished by this friend of hers that um, she knew. That's how she got the apartment, got a job, and knew about this town that she moves into. And, ta-da, she's a witch. Um, The apartment is adorned with all kinds of really garish, uh, satanic symbols and designs and paintings and cups and all this other stuff. And what she, all she wants in life is to be loved by a man. That's the only thing that matters in her whole existence. And so she uses witchcraft to try to meet the perfect man. Um, and I've seen a couple of comments, um, from individuals that are like, well, Instead of watching The Love Witch, why don't you just watch a real 70s movie? But that wholly misses the point here. Um, so what Anna Biller is doing with The Love Witch is she's taking the attitudes and tropes of those 70s movies. And while she's mimicking the visual aesthetic um, perfectly, she is completely subverting all of those um, expectations and tropes and is creating a feminist dialogue. So as we all know, the seventies wasn't exactly the most, uh, liberating time for, for women. So you have all these movies where the man is in power, the man is in charge, the women are secretaries and go get my piece of paper or go get my cup of coffee or, Hey, you're the sexy one in the movie. So obviously you're going to end up having sex with me by the end of the film. And Anna Biller completely uh, twists that and has not just the the female lead doing this um, to the men, which one could even consider that um, you could uh, define it as rape of the men. Um, But it's also speaking very strongly on how those attitudes of men is mentally damaging to a woman. So she is a strong female type, but all she needs and wants is the love of a man. There's these little subtle clues um, throughout the progression of the film as you uh, get more insight into her character, where it is the patriarchal stigma that has forced her to think this is what she needs to be happy. When she's capable of being happy and a myriad other ways. And then, Oh, she's with this dude. And of course she's unhappy because she's trying to force this image. Um, and so it, it, it kind of shows more how our society is damaging, um, to women by these expectations, but all the while having this woman trying to fill, fulfill those expectations. It's really smart and really interesting and hilarious. Um, the, the, 
I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get too much, uh, into, into specifics, but the, the first man that she meets and she gives a love potion to and she makes love to, she leaves him in the bed and she's out in the living room having a cigarette and the Elaine? love potion. <laughs> The love potion she makes is so strong that her not touching him is so terrible that he's screaming and crying in bed. And she's and it cuts to her and she has this constant internal monologue that is voiceover. And she's smoking a cigarette and she's just like, what a pussy. (laughs) And it's just it's really, really funny. Um, And it's I, I absolutely loved it. I love these types of old 70s movies. I loved how Anna Biller, you know, mirrored those films. It's a little too on the nose. Like, she's not trying to um, change the aesthetic. She is slavishly following that aesthetic. Um, there's a there's a late film twist um, regarding the aesthetic that I thought was really cool. And... And it's just really funny. It's two hours long, which is about 15 or 20 minutes too long. Um, I could I could feel it starting to drag as it was going on, but it was still interesting. I still enjoyed each scene that I was watching. Uh, there's this whole ridiculous Renaissance festival with all these Wiccans and crazy people. And there's a pretend marriage ceremony. It's really weird and funny, um, but and maybe it didn't have to be as long as it had to be. That's really my only complaint. Um, I was really interesting and uh, excited to see this movie show up on a lot of critics' top ten lists of the year as well. Um, I didn't think it was going to be that big of a hit with uh, the the film community. Uh, so that was that was pleasantly surprising, but it's I think it's definitely worth the accolades. It's a really smart, really clever film that's fun to watch. Um, I still haven't yet, but I want to I want to check out Anna Biller's older movies. Uh, this is basically her shtick. Um, her previous movies is you know I like seventies movies and seventies fashion, so I'm going to make my own seventies movie. Um, I, I don't know if checked her out on Letterboxd. Huh? Uh, checked her out on Letterboxd and all of the other. Uh, all the other movie covers look very similar in terms of aesthetic. Yeah. And so I don't know if any of those other ones are going to be as good as The Love Witch, or maybe this is like, this was her pinnacle, this is what she was working towards. Uh, but she interests me very much as an, as an artist. Um, and I love the fact that she likes the same kind of weird old movies that I do. <laughs> I'm curious if I would have liked it more if I, if it didn't go over my head. Because I had uh, I had uh, I after I finished watching it, I read up on it, and I'm like, oh, that's what it was about. I <laughs> can't believe I missed that. Whoops. Uh, but even still, it was it was enjoyable. It's very weird. And weird is always good. But that's why this wouldn't have been my actual number two. But I had to pair it up with something. So because you know, I felt like it. All right. <laughs> So moving on to The Witch, um, which if you ever see anyone out on the Internet spelling it or seeing, yeah, the the, 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 you know, (laughs) punch them in the face. It's The Witch. It's just the stylistic lettering. Oh, Oh, it makes me so upset every time I see that. It's like it's just The Witch, guys. Jesus Christ. Um, Anyway, so The Witch is the feature film directorial debut of Robert Eggers. And what he did 
I think is really, really incredible. So he took genuine witch folklore from uh, the Puritan days. So the, the full title of the film is The Witch, A New England Folktale. Uh, it takes place in the early 1600s. So this is, you know, this is uh, the Puritan age. Um, Plymouth Rock, there's only like a thousand people that live in America that have emigrated from England. Uh, there's still uh, actual Native American tribes all over the place. You know, we haven't quite murdered the indigenous people yet. Um, and so the land with all of the, these forests, nobody's really used to it. It's, it's a land filled with mystery and, and strangeness. Um, so in the film starts out with a Puritan family being kicked out of their town for being too Puritan. Um, it's basically like if the Republicans actually disavowed the Tea Party and said, y'all bitch is a little too crazy. It's, it's that. So this family strikes off on their own after being evicted from the town and they begin to start their life anew and things start to go south when their new baby child um, goes missing. And we as the audience, we see that a witch in the woods has kidnapped the child and you very graphically see this witch brutally eviscerate the child and make food out of the the child it's really gross and it's really fucked up and terrifying um but the film itself for the majority there are genuine scenes of horror um that show the witch in the woods um i think there's approximately three scenes total um the rest of the film focuses on the family on their homestead and it is purely about um, religious terror. Um, the, these Puritans, they're so Bible bent, like everything is a sin and everything is terrible and they live their life in complete fear. And wrapped up in that is how the family is treating their eldest daughter, uh, Thomasine, who is played by newcomer Anya Taylor-Joy, who has actually been in a bunch of movies uh, this year after um, after her breakout role with The Witch. Um, and so it turns itself as a feminist ear towards how religion and, you know, this, this type of Puritan religious fanaticism is dangerous to women, um, which we see that in our daily lives, unfortunately. Um, all these white dudes thinking that they can tell women what to do with their bodies and with their lives by making laws that force them to do something. Um, that's really the core of this movie. And so while playing on the kind of fanatical fear that led to the Salem witch trials, which... Um, historically take place after this film uh, takes place. And so Thomasine, she can't do anything. She has to make sure she lives her life by this very strict order. And after the, uh, the baby infant goes missing, the two other children very much mirroring the actual Salem witch trials, basically lie to the parents and state that Thomasine admitted to them that she's a witch and so now becomes like this crazy cleansing. You know, the parents got to purge the evil from the daughter because 
you know, not inconsequentially, she is a prepubescent going through puberty. So she's having her first period. She's starting to grow breasts, all these, you know, natural progressions in a woman's life. And all of these instances are being twisted and turned as saying, see, this is proof that she has sold her soul to the devil. Um, and it just con- continues to spiral um, and, and go down this, this really terrifying trend of this loving, doting father and this caring mother villainizing and attacking their daughter over bullshit. The fact that witches actually do exist is immaterial because the persecution is based off of lies, which is exactly what the Salem witch trials were. They were um, launched by a couple of children who had a grudge against some woman and said that she was a witch. And now everybody's being tortured and killed and saying, this person's a witch too. Leave me out of this. But the crazy people in Massachusetts just decided to kill everybody. Um, that's, that's how the Salem witch trials happened. And so the, it's kind of that scenario in a microcosm, a very isolated incident. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but the, the very ending of the film I thought was not just appropriate, um, but continued the feminist, um, women should be liberated vibe of the movie that it it portrays by showing how much Thomasine is persecuted and the slower pace of the film I thought worked brilliantly because it really steeps you Um, there is no other movie this year that puts you into a different time or place than The Witch Um, somehow you actually think you're watching early 1600s people and um, landscape which is insane because that was 400 years ago. Um, it, but there, there's just so much attention paid to the detail of the design that you are sitting and soaking in this world. But what's fascinating is there's actual evil lying underneath these things. But is that evil bad? Uh, when, the, when the film was released, it got uh, hilariously some notoriety by being officially christened by the church of Satan as a, um, a real, you know, like the church of Satan came out and said the witch, this movie a hundred percent embodies our beliefs. Uh, and, and we support this movie. The interesting thing about that is the church of Satan actually isn't a bunch of Satanists going around murdering people. Like the far right Republicans would have you think since the early eighties, satanic panic, the Church of Satan actually believes in true freedom. <laughs> and so that's what they try to keep pushing is, you know, religious, like Christianity especially, is an oppressive society, and an oppressive struct that we need to destroy in order for people to actually be free. Those are the real beliefs and what the, the Church of Satan actually tries to accomplish. That's why, you know... Oh, we need to erect the Ten Commandments on the steeple of our uh, state's capital because we're a religious state or whatever nonsense. And then the Church of Satan, you, the Church of Satan will come out and say, "Well, you're right. So now that you've made that a law, so that you're allowed to do these things that violate the Constitution, we're going to erect a giant statue 
of the goat version of Satan, and that's our religious right to do so. Like they're they're constantly fucking with the religious right in these kind of ways. Um, <laughs> and so in that aspect, yes, the witch is very much a movie that represents things that the Church of Satan believes. But it was it was really hilarious because that just pissed so many people off and riled so many feathers. And like the Church of Satan, um, they even they held a, a, a satanic ritual before the showing of the movie at one of the, at, at some special event. Like they just went full in on uh, promoting this movie in all the wonderfully fucked up ways that piss off just the right people. Corey, you were, uh, uh, ing. What was that all about? Oh, the I, church of Satan. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, it started in the 60s by Anton LaVey. I'm sorry, I know too much about that. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, The Witch, I, I, last year um, when we recorded our top five movies, I even mentioned at one point, I was like, you know, I had just seen The Witch like the weekend or the day before we recorded that podcast. I was like, I'm pretty sure this is going to be on my list for next year, but we'll see what all happens. And a ton of really great things came out, but nothing, nothing came out, in my opinion, as a higher quality of horror film that was able to be so horrific, but have such potent uh, messaging that, than The Witch. And so, yeah, here we are. It's, it's, it's still my number two. It's my number two for the year. Um, it's my actual number three, um, but we're going to have it number two here. Uh, the witch is incredible, Corey. What did you not like about it? Let's talk I, about that. I don't. I don't know. I thought it was boring, <laughs> like dry, slow. Uh, like I was waiting for something to happen, and I don't know. I guess nothing ever happened that satisfied that feeling, which is. Which is what a lot of people have said, actually. So the witch is it falls into the category of it follows and the Babadook, where critically it's a success and people have, you know, written endlessly about the films. But the general public didn't like um, the general public really did not like the witch um, for the, the reasons that you that you state. And I won't disagree with you. It is a slow burn. You spend this movie with this family slowly eroding and um, going crazy and all this other stuff, and you just kind of sit in it. You have the three scenes that involve the witch. You have one other scene that involves um, the devil, which (laughs) those four scenes I thought were just absolutely incredible, but they don't – they're not explosive you know, they don't jump out and be like, wow, that made the last 15 minutes worth it because, bam, that was in your face. It's still very, oh, the devil, very down. You just mentioned the devil scene, which just made me remember. Oh, yeah, that was probably the best part because that that part of the movie is just like, what in the shit? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I like that part. I don't know. It's just it didn't. I don't. Maybe it. Maybe a part of it is that before I saw it, like everyone was like, oh, it's so good. It's so good. I mean, sometimes that works, but sometimes that backfires. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I even bought it, too. So I have it on Blu-ray and I watched it and I'm just like, oh, no. 
Yeah. I think this, I think the slow pace works in its favor. Um, it is very dry. You know, it's, like I said, it's slavishly detailed to be like the early 1600s. So, I mean, those people weren't exactly cracking wise. Um, <laughs> and that they are not just Puritans, but they're extremely fanatical Puritans, so much so that their Puritan community kicked them out. Um, so it really, like, it plays how I feel that it should be played based off of the setting and the characters and the story. But yeah, it's not, it's not fast moving. It's not snap, crackle and pop. Um, so yeah, I won't fault anybody for thinking it's boring. I'll say give it another shot to, to see the tons of nuance that are filtered throughout it. Um, but yeah, if you don't dig it, yeah, that's, that's, that's fine. I can totally understand that, but I will, I will still say that it is in, an incredibly made movie. Uh, Robert Eggers needs to make another movie. Um, sooner rather than later. All right, number two. Cool. The Witch and the Love Witch. Uh, continuing the, spring, the trend of me not seeing anyone else's movies. <laughs> All right, on to my number two. Uh, my number two is Barry Jenkins' Moonlight. Um, That's number two, yeah. huh? Hmm. What's number one? Uh, this is based off of a play by Terrell McCartney, uh called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue. Oh, I didn't know it was based on a play. I still haven't listened to your podcast that you yeah, sent me. Yeah, uh, based on a play. Uh, Barry Jenkins and Terrell McCartney actually grew up in the same neighborhood in Miami that uh, Chiron is is in, but they did not know each other at the time. Um, Barry Jenkins is not gay, but uh, Terrell is, and this is... This movie is very much based on both of their lives. So um, he Jenkins explains, uh, I don't remember which is which, but in the first, so this movie is split into three segments, uh, three parts of Chiron's life. Uh, and one of the, the first segment uh, is based off of uh, one of them, either Barry Jenkins or uh, Terrell, and then the second one is based off of the other one. And then the third one is based off of neither of them, but kind of the uh, extrapolation of what could happen, what could have happened to either of them, uh, given the first two parts. So uh, the first part is Little, which that's his nickname, um, Chiron's nickname at the time, because he is a tiny kid. Um, he meets Mahershala Ali's character in this segment, uh, who is named Juan, and he is a... Uh, very dark-skinned Cuban, um, who also sells drugs to Chiron's mother. And uh, uh, Juan kind of provides this father figure, uh, this actually any authority figure who has uh, any sort of like useful information, um, useful life information to give to Chiron. Um, I, I heard an interview of... Uh, Mahershala Ali giving, talking about his role as Juan, and um, he like just uh, he just started crying because uh, if Juan wasn't there for Chiron to be able to um, to be able to help help him go through what he's going through as uh, a child who doesn't doesn't have any uh, authority figures that are role models to him, and he doesn't really know. Who to ask? Um, who to ask about his sexuality? So he asks one, and 
there's the scene where Chiron says, uh, says, and pardon the language, he says, what, what's a faggot? And, uh, Juan says, that's what people say to gay people to make them feel bad. And, uh, so he asks, am I, am I a faggot? And Juan says, uh, you might be gay, but you ain't like, no one tell you you're no faggot or something. You know, in the way that Mahershala Ali can only do. But like, that's, these are defining moments in his life where he's, uh, he's learning about his own sexuality and learning that he is, uh, a gay man, learning that that is okay because he's not okay, uh, in the society that he's growing up in. Uh, so in the second part, uh, Chiron, next one, he actually has, uh, this gay experience with one of, one of his friends, um, but it breaks down after, uh, the bully, uh, recruits his, uh, Chiron's friend and, uh, basically has him beat up Chiron, which eventually leads to, um, Chiron going to jail because he assaulted the bully, uh, which goes to the third section, which is, uh, black, and that is, that was Chiron's nickname from his friend, uh, but he has taken it on to himself because that is the only time where he's felt like, where he's felt like he could be himself when he was being called black by this friend of his. And this is, uh, this is, uh, the extrapolation of Barry Jenkins and, and, uh, and, uh, Terrell McCartney. It's when he has gotten out of jail from assaulting the keg, and now he is dealing drugs outside of Atlanta. And he, uh, in the first part, he felt, like, so broken up by the fact that, uh, this role model to him, Juan, was selling drugs to his mother, and now he is doing the exact same thing, because, uh, he just kind of shakes his head, and it's like, that's, that's all I can do. Well, he's, right? he, ta- he takes on... Like, he becomes Juan, yeah. basically, because after circumstances, <laughs> uh, he doesn't really have anywhere to turn, especially after he goes to jail yeah. and his friend, quote-unquote, betrays yeah. him. You know, he, he's tired of it. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And instead of, you know, being loved for who he is, the solution he finds is to become someone else. Yeah. And that someone was Juan. Um, this uh, this movie is so personal to Barry Jenkins that he has actually only watched it once. Um, like after after they get all the posts, making sure that everything is good in it. Um, but whenever he goes to screenings, he always finds a reason to get up and just not watch the movie because it's too it's too close to home that he just can't watch this play out again. Because he knows that he's so close to to have grown up being black instead of being this director, and his mother was so close to uh, Naomi Harris's character that he doesn't he can't he can't watch that. But there is a there was a scene he says uh, in the interview that I sent you, Corey, um, uh, the scene between uh, Chiron and his mother, uh, I believe, at the end. In the third part, where yeah. like he yeah. forces himself to watch that. Um, this this movie is so so good. Of uh, that scene where his mother's at a, I think it's like a home, like a old people home. I don't know what the right word is for that. Um, I don't know. 
retirement home. Like more of a maybe halfway home or something, or maybe even like uh, this is still rehab, just not as many, uh, not as many restrictions I, on it. Yeah, at that scene. I feel like in that scene, he finally is able to forgive his yeah. mother because his mother is uh, like in the second segment, uh, a family friend of theirs gives Chiron money, and she basically guilts him out of giving it to her because she needs more drugs and she doesn't have any money. No, this movie is really, really, really excellent. Um, if, it, if it wasn't evident in, in saying so, there are three different actors playing both Sharon and Kevin, who is his friend, because he, he starts off at like six or seven or so. Um, then the second part is when he's about 16, 17. Then the third part, he's got to be in his late 20s, early 30s. It's really good. The ending is so brutal. I cannot, I cannot wait to see this movie. I've, it didn't play here at all until really? they, uh, until they re-released it uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and then you know that was just a couple weeks ago. I had other things, okay. <laughs> so, so I, I have not gotten out to it yet. Um, I just, I just can't, I just. Cannot wait until I can see this movie. I think it comes out on Blu-ray in just like two or three weeks. Uh, well, so, you really, get the Blu-ray in my mailbox. Let, let's look that up right now because it's super easy to find out. Oh, you're right, Ooh. February 28th. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to yeah. being, being able to uh, re-experience this soul-crushing experience. Like some good likes. <laughs> yeah, I think it was like early November. I was talking to Corey about this movie, and I like tried looking it up, and it was like, oh, according to this, it came out like two or three weeks ago. No, it's not playing. Maybe maybe it did open here, and it played for like one week at some theater that's I never know about. But I, I honestly don't think it ever played in this town at all. <laughs> D- darn shame. Uh, this is a movie that um, if you have a chance to go see it, I would implore you to go see it. No matter what you're doing, unless you're like have the plague, does not give other people the plague to go see this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it comes on video in two weeks. That also means you can rent it digitally yeah. in two. Weeks. You could probably do that next yeah. week. It's very good um, because, like watching this, it's you not you as in like a general, but um, people who grow up in these uh, middle class neighborhoods, majority white neighborhoods, don't realize how how close that people they know or people they see could be to to this, to Moonlight's characters, or could actually be them. It's just uh, eye-opening for someone who's just getting into learning about everything that is wrong with America. Anyway, number two. Moonlight. Joyful times. A very uncontroversial yeah. pick. <laughs> uh, all right. Got one last reader list, listener list. Um, Wait. What? Never mind. I was like, did Corey do his number two? Autopsy of Jane Doe. Yeah, and I'm like, that's why I was like, wait, it, I just talked for so long, I, I lost track of time. <laughs> all right. Uh, Alex Osborne, uh, Annie Gamers dude, Frank of Jerigan Inc., um, his number, or his top five, Kubo with the two strings, and the two strings, whatever, Kubo, Zootopia, Arrival, Rogue One, and 10 Cloverfield Lane. 
What was this? The second to the last one? Rogue One. Rogue One. Okay. Ten Cloverfield Lane. Very that could, good. That could have been a contender, but I, there were a I, lot of other good movies. <laughs> I, 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 you have to know me and my my film taste very um, strongly. Get into the nuances of what I like and dislike, and uh, I am of the crowd that uh, the last ten minutes of the movie don't completely ruin it, <laughs> but it basically makes it from not being one of the best of the year to yeah, nope, that was a good ass movie. <laughs> Interesting. I that is yeah. we could we could have that talk when people aren't. Rec- when we're not recording to uh, spoil people because I could say one sentence and it would spoil that movie. <laughs> but I you mean, would also... I, could, I could see that. They could also have done the movie a different way and been just well, as powerful. Well, they did do the movie a different way. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, they, rest, they, the whole before that, yeah. Yeah, I, well, I, the, the, the only reason the movie has Cloverfield in the name is because that was the only way that Dan Trachtenberg could get the funding to make the movie, so he had to... Oh, really? Yeah, oh. basically that was that was what cinched the deal for him to get funding, and so he had to change a couple of things so that it could be in that universe, and so that he could get funding. It, it like literally the last ten minutes is a different movie than the first hour and a half, oh and gosh. it was a bad idea in my opinion. I could see that. <sighs> John Goodman deserves all the awards, though he He's, is incredible. Yep, he is very good. good. All right. Number ones. Are we all ready? No. Uh, no. So, I feel so like Chris scary. is number one. It's got to no, be. Too bad. Chris, you're number one. It's oh, got to be. Gotta so be. Be, before, before I say anything, I have to know. I have to hear Corey's guess. What do you oh. think it is? All right. The Neon Demon. Okay. Now that your guess has been stated, uh-huh. my number one is... The neon demon. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Well, like, like, you know, every year, you know, there's the movies I talk about as my number one, or maybe not my number one, but I always preface with, "Hey, this is the movie that, in big neon lights, says we are made for Chris." Uh, the neon demon is that movie for this year. I'm all. I'm also a huge fan of the director, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, his movie drive everybody knows drive if you haven't seen drive you should see drive it's one of my favorite movies ever um but his his career is actually really fascinating because he started out making not very stylish movies he made very direct crime dramas um the 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 pusher movies um the second film in that trilogy pusher 2 um, which it has a huge uh, main role, early role for Mads Mikkelsen, is incredible. Like the, I think he's a great director. After Drive, which exploded, Refn proceeded to firmly climb entirely up his own ass. <laughs> yep. And, and make such extremely esoteric movies that. I feel They're like so he's getting even more esoteric with each one. Yes. And, and this is, and he's only made two movies after drive. The first one was, uh, only God forgives, which is incredible. Um, the people who don't like only God forgives are on the wrong side of history. I'll agree with that. Uh, 
<laughs> but it's a hard movie to get into because he is now going for the most abstract type of visual storytelling that you could possibly imagine. Only God forgives is like, it has like two minutes of dialogue throughout the whole two hour movie. Um, and, and it's, it's got these weird, you know, bright primary colors. Drive didn't have this. So people going into Only God Forgives because they love to drive, they're the ones who were the most upset. And the neon demon crawls even further up his own ass. Yep. <laughs> and it, so people, people think that saying that a movie is pretentious is a bad thing. Well, no, if your movie is pretentious, that means you're trying to do something. Um, People say that, oh, that movie was not subtle. Um, okay, most movies aren't subtle. And if a movie is subtle, that means it's layered in so much metaphor that you don't understand it anyway, so you dislike it. Um, when people say that the movie is not subtle or the movie is shallow, basically they're saying that the movie was not in their comfort zone. Um, it, didn't, it didn't approach the material in the way that they would have liked and all of these things are 100% the neon demon. It's a problematic film. I'll give it that. I'm not going to say the movie's perfect or that any criticism against the film is um, misguided. This is an extremely divisive film. People hate this movie with the utmost vehemency. Um, but I love it. So <laughs> the neon demon is a, a Hollywood fable about the fashion industry. Um, 16 year old Elle Fanning, who actually was 16 when she made this movie, moves to Hollywood. It's never entirely clear if she ran away or if her parents died and she ran out away from the foster system. Uh, but either way, she's on her own in Los Angeles trying to become a fashion model. And the film is about how shallow the fashion industry is how shallow the people in that industry is, how shallow Los Angeles is. And it does this with what people have accused the film of being is a very shallow approach. It's all glitz and glamour. Um, and some people argue that it's no substance. I believe there's a lot of substance in the film. Um, this was also so one of the things that Refn has spent, built his entire career off of is telling stories about the violence of man. Um, every single one of his movies is about violent men and how that violence defines them and destroys them and destroys the, the people around them. There's tons of different ways that you could talk about the violence of man. And that's literally what his entire filmography has been. So with the Neon Demon, he wanted to do that story, but from a, a female's perspective. So the film was co-written by uh, two other women. Let me get their names correctly. <laughs> uh, Mary Laws and Polly Stenham. And while they were actually filming the movie, the uh, female cast would chime in and uh, provide suggestions. And so he would change the script on the fly. I actually read the, the script for the film. The script is only like 30 pages. And oh, wow. It, and a good half of the script did not make, or a good half of the movie is not in the script. Um, the whole finale was basically improv. Um, so I read for those, that. 
So for those who have seen it, that was Nicholas Winding Refn improving some extremely fucked up shit. Um, L. Fanning even actually gets punched in the face. Oh man, goodness! It was supposed to be a fake punch, but it was an accident. But they, but the, but the actual real contact is what made it into the cut of the film. So um, yeah, and so he's trying to to tell. Not really a feminist film, but a film about females. Um, and he's trying to be respectful. A um, lot of people all over the internet, you can look for him, say that he fails. I don't think he fails entirely. He's mostly successful. Um, but it's, it's his penchant because, because he wanted to make a horror movie. He adds some extremely fucked up shit that when you when you see it, you sit there and you say, how is that female empowerment or how is that from a female perspective? Like you get lost because it's it's some fucked up shit. Um, it's, it's probably no secret. There is necrophilia in the film just to give you a small taste of the fucked up shit that goes down in the finale of the film. And that's really, that's really like all you can say. There, there are men in the film, um, but it's a very small, like, I think there's only like four or five guys in the whole movie. But what's fascinating is he portrays every single man in the movie as a predator. The, these are pervert Keanu Reeves. Yeah. They're, they're perverts. They're sexual predators. Um, there, there's Keanu Reeves who, um, you know, he's all into that real Lolita shit. Uh, he actually says that. That's a that's a quote from the movie. It's <laughs> some real Lolita shit, and he says it twice because he, you know, that's some real Lolita shit. Lower the tone. Some real Lolita shit. Um, Keanu Reeves is incredible, but he is a disgusting, perverted predator. Um, the supposed love interest in the in the in the film, like the dude's not a bad guy. But he is in his 20s and he's knowingly trying to have sex with a 16 year old. Whether he has actual feelings for her or not is immaterial. He's still a sexual predator. Um, and every man in the movie is portrayed this way. They're these very broad predator archetypes. Um, the women in the movie are, you know, they're, they're fighting against the system, but they're also perpetrating the system. Like some of the women in this movie are the bitchiest people you will ever see on film. Like they're, they're scum. Um, but everybody's not exactly very good. Elle Fanning's character goes through a couple of transformations. Um, this isn't trying to portray a positive light. It's not saying, Hey, look, women are oppressed and the fashion system is cruel. It's saying, no, um, women can be kind of messed up too. It's, it's kind of like Gone Girl. Like the first time I watched Gone Girl, I was like, wow, I don't really know if this is the kind of messaging that we need to be putting out there. And then the, you know, I watched it again and again and I was like, no, this is, this is perfect. You know, men want to say that, you know, women fake rape, you know, to get their way and that women do all these terrible things to men. Oh, boo hoo. You know, you're you're creating a supervillain character that fulfills those archetypes and says, yes, men, you have something to fear. Like, that's okay because men are are portrayed in films as being multifaceted as well. They're not all good guys. They're not all bad guys. Women can be the same way, too. Does Refn go a little overboard? 
Probably, most likely, yes. Um, but it's the same kind of approach that he's trying to do, and that's what gives um, the weird messaging. Um, but where the film is absolutely not at fault and is perfect is its visual style and its uh, soundtrack. Um, once again, Cliff Martinez does the soundtrack. Uh, he was the composer for both Drive and Only God Forgives. And um, he turns in another absolutely stellar electronica soundtrack. Um, the visual style is off the chain. Uh, I, my, one of my favorite motifs that shows up twice in the movie, um, it's like this weird... Like, like the, the screen is getting scratched with a Brillo. Um, and it's a, a strobe light effect with these scratches appearing. I think that's really fascinating. And Refn chooses to tell his story mostly through symbols as opposed to through plot. Um, which is entirely what I feed off of as well. This was the movie that was made for Chris this year. Um, the biggest symbol in the film is the triangle. The triangle traditionally symbolizes transformation. So if you watch the film, pay attention to every time there's um, some sort of triangle on the screen, you'll notice um, a transformation taking place. This is why, oh. you know, Elle Fanning's character will be standing there talking politely to, like at the very beginning, she goes to a party. They're in the bathroom. She's talking all politely, all good, you know, country girl. The three other women, uh, Gigi, Sarah, and Ruby, they are standing in the shape of a triangle. And then all of a sudden, Elle Fanning starts getting fucking snippety and lippy and pisses off Gigi. And now the triangle changes to where it's now Gigi, Ruby, and uh, Elle Fanning. And now she's not polite but she's not snippy she's kind of like standing her own ground like it, it does these really stark contrasts and it's always preceded by some sort of visual triangle um the centerpiece of the film is the uh the fat the, they actually have a fashion show and it's the most unfashion show fashion show of all time it's uh, yeah it's incredible so they she um l fanning gets gets a role in a to walk in a fashion show and the the designer, um, he tells her that he wants her to be the centerpiece. And then all of a sudden there is just all the girls and all these clothes standing there. It's it's pitch black. There's weird strobe lights and they're just standing there. And then all of a sudden there's this huge multi triangle doorway that appears and you see Elle Fanning from one angle watching the door and then a different Elle Fanning walking through the door. And the color of the triangle changes from blue to red. And you can see the structural change in attitude from Elle Fanning, um, both when she's walking through the door when it's blue and when she's walking through it when it's red. And Elle Fanning's other character of Elle Fanning watching all of this happen. It's Refn has crawled so far up his ass. He is making movies like his next movie might be I might be the only person that likes it. <laughs> In the whole world, because I love the way that he does these things. You know, is he speaking profoundly and opening up new doors that nobody has ever imagined with the fashion industry? No. Who the fuck cares? Um, he's telling that he's telling this story in a very different way. 
he's telling the story visually and it's extremely interesting and exciting visually. The, the acting is really good. Um, Jenna Malone, I've been a huge fan of her for years upon years upon years. She absolutely steals the movie for me as a uh, makeup artist, Ruby. Um, she is also, um, <clears throat> in the, a, a major party to the extremely fucked upness that occurs in the final 15 minutes. <laughs> Like, like people are gonna not not believe me. Like they're gonna watch this movie and be like, you know, it's not gonna be nearly as fucked up as as Chris said. He's just he's just making stuff up. And then then you'll send me hate mail um, because maybe I undersold how fucked up it was. There's some bad things that happen. <laughs> we don't have an email. <laughs> well, we have Twitter. I mean, that's close enough. <laughs> they're just gonna be like, oh my god. Um, and, and, and I love the movie, and it's. And I've, I've read a lot of the, the negative opinion on the film, and I agree with it. Um, it's not for everyone. It's divisive for a reason. It, it, this isn't, you know, people are right or people are wrong, and I think I'm right and you think you're right. It's, no, it's, it's a very, it's a challenging movie, but it's also Refn completely firmly up his own ass making movies for him. He doesn't care about the audience. He doesn't give a shit about you. He's making art that he wants to make, and that pretty much guarantees that a lot of people aren't going to like it. He He's not entirely successful. It is very problematic in some of the things that he illustrates. But I think that's part of the exciting part, you know. He's trying to do something, you know, that whole pretentious uh, label. It's not a negative thing. He's trying something. Whether he succeeds or not doesn't really matter. He attempted to make something and, and speak to something through his art and it is what it is and I appreciate it for what it is I rewatched it uh, last night God, oh, it's, so yeah. good. it's so good man uh, that soundtrack is killer just yes the neon demon and and I think it's it's not my favorite refin because you know you will you will pry drive from my heart um, from my cold dead hands uh, but the Neon Demon, it is definitely my second favorite uh, Refn film. And he's made a lot of really, really good movies that I really, really like. And if you're interested in Refn, but you don't like the Neon Demon or Only God Forgives, you have literally every movie he made before because he didn't start doing this really weird Technicolor European art house stuff until Only God Forgives. Uh, so this is a new phase in his artistic career, so... Don't discount him. He's one of my favorites. And The Neon Demon is my second favorite movie of the year. My favorite horror movie of the year. I'm done. Neon Demon. Number one. I mean, I'm so I'm so shocked that that's what you guessed, Corey, because, you know. <laughs> what movie this year was a horror movie, had neon lights, had retro electronica right. music, right. had, right. you know... Weird visual style, Check. more style. I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> I would just stop it. Like, Refn, Gosling, all right. Well, Gosling's not no, in this one. Gosling's not Damn. in no, no, he is not in this one. I was disappointed myself. <laughs> but I got I got two Goslings and two Refins, and so I'm pretty good all with right. that. But this one has Keanu. Yeah, yeah. Keanu, I was going to say, like, Keanu's pretty you have Keanu Reeves and Ryan Gosling. Did one of them outstoic the other one? <laughs> but no, sadly Gosling is not in this one. My I was I was heartbroken. But I 
I will I will push through. <laughs> All right, Neon Demon number one. Uh, I'll get to my number one, which is uh, the Netflix documentary by Ava DuVernay, Thirteenth. Uh, keeping it very serious on my end of the boat. Um, 13th is named after the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which outlined slavery, asterisk. Um, asterisk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so slavery was outlawed with the 13th Amendment unless as a punishment for a crime. So guess what happened uh, in the South after, after that happened? Um, several things that black people typically do or several things that were not formally crimes now became crimes um and people black people all around uh the world were then incarcerated and put to what is essentially slavery um so the film the wikipedia says here the film begins with the fact that 25% of the people in the world who are incarcerated are incarcerated in the United States. That's so fucked up! And, um, throughout, throughout the film it shows several, several data points. Um, but the, the one most striking to me was, here is the number of incarcerated in the 1970s, which was something like 300,000. Um. Yeah, it gets like exponential. Yeah, and then it just, it, it keeps rising throughout the film. Throughout, uh, throughout points in which they say this happened here, this happened here, this happened here, uh, at which uh, Bill Clinton's law, the three strikes thingy, that's when it really started to rise meteorically, at which point we are at like two million people uh, incarcerated in the U.S. right now. People can't think that this is okay. I don't understand. <laughs> So that's that's part of uh, that's part of what it's getting at, right? Because um, it's okay if we are incarcerating two million people if they are all criminals. And since in the nineties we criminalize uh, we criminalize drug use, uh, like even minor drug use, we criminalize so many things that black people typically do that it is seen as okay because they are criminals. Like uh, I went to this this talk by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Who, if you're not familiar, he wrote uh, two two memoirs. One named "Between the World and Me," which is his more recent one, and one called uh, "The Beautiful Struggle," which is uh, the former is about him and his son. It's three letters to his son, and the latter is about him and his dad. So, he, and he also is a uh, correspondent for the Atlantic. He wrote several good pieces, uh, most notably "The Case for Reparations" a couple years ago, and this year "My President Was Black," which is about Obama. Uh, Obama, the good parts, the bad parts, the everything parts of uh, Barack Obama and Tanahasi Coates' relationship to him. Um, he, we're, oh, yes, I went to this talk with Coates, um, and he's talking about uh, the lies we tell ourselves. That's how he began. The most, the first uh, serious thing that he began in this talk was the lies we tell ourselves, and then the lies that we stack upon the lies. So the first lie in this case would be, like, it is bad to use drugs. The second lie we tell ourselves on top of this is black people use drugs, uh, like, across the board. And then the third lie that we would tell ourselves is black people are criminals. And, like, each one, if we start at black people are criminals, that's ridiculous, but we started at uh, drug use is bad. So we just stack these things on top of each other, 
until we get to the point that it is so ridiculous, but everyone is believing it because of how we got there. And that's, that's I think, what 13th is trying to say. Uh, we go from the 13th Amendment uh, to where we are now. Um, and we realize that nothing has really changed. And uh, black people should not have to justify their existence to a greater populace in the United States, but it seems that's where we are. I think, I think the most, I don't know if it's, you, you can, you can inform me on this. I don't know if it's actually a clip from that movie, but I saw a video clip where, um, it was footage from 13th and it was overlaid with the absolutely god awful things that Trump was saying leading up to the election. Is that actually in the movie or was that a, uh, Trump's creation. in there. They had some quotes from Trump in the movie. I do want to see this as well. However, the only documentary I watched was a British documentary called Hypernormalization, which was two and a half, three hours. A very similar approach, but a very different, very, very different topic. Yeah, um, uh, yeah this Ava uh, uh, DuVernay, if you know nothing about her, she takes Selma immediately preceding this. Yep. Um, and she did uh, an interview with Code Switch very recently. With Code Switch the podcast from NPR is where the Barry Jenkins interview that we mentioned previously. Um, but she did an interview with them, and she's like, "I went from staging uh, staging the things in Selma, Alabama, in the '60s to um, doing all this research and uh, filming for 13th, which like she didn't." <laughs> She didn't really get a break between those, and it's just like this soul-crushing experience followed by soul-crushing experience, knowing that the institutional and systemic uh, uh, injustices of the United States back to back, and now she is now she's doing something way different. Um, so thank God that she has a break between between whatever else she's making after this. Is she still doing a Marvel movie, or did she de- decline that? Um, I don't know. I know she was she was in talks to do a Marvel movie, and I think at one point was going to do a Marvel movie, but I don't remember if she was still going to do uh, it or what not. What she's doing right now is the pre for A Wrinkle in Time. Ah, that's yeah. right. Um, but yeah, this is... Uh, if you watch any movie from 2016, it should be 13th, probably. Um it's like this is this should be required watching for schools and shit. Absolutely. Uh, all right. Thirteenth, number one. Corey, watch it. It's on Netflix. Yes, this is a Netflix movie. It'll be on Netflix for the foreseeable future. Um, Corey, bring us home. Number one. All right. So it was gonna be Green Room until I rewatched it this morning. Uh, but so then it was gonna be Train to Busan. <laughs> but I'm, I'm still going to talk about that, though. Uh, and then, so we'll say that's number one, but I'm going to d- add in some other movies to <laughs> pad it out a bit. Uh, so, yeah, going back to Train to Busan, um, uh, to touch on some things Chris didn't touch on or lightly touched on, uh, like I was talking about before with um, Hunt for the Wilder People and how that's a coming-of-age movie, Train to Busan's zombie movie and zombies aren't interesting at least not anymore and the way train to busan humanizes the characters and 
juxtaposes them with the zombies is is what is unique to Train to Busan, and it's done so excellently well. Going into the movie, there's the idea that you should only look after yourself because that's what matters. And then as the movie goes on, like different characters go up against this idea of doing things for yourself and doing things for other people, uh, especially the the main guy. Um, I don't know how I, my Korean is zero. Suk Woo, <laughs> Suk Woo. I don't know. Like he, like he's he's like the head of like an investment firm or something, and. He's not likable at all, but as the movie goes on and as terrible things happen and as the situation arises, uh, he figures out that, no, you should put your trust into other people. You should help other people out, um, not only for them, but for yourself as well, as in, like, helping people is good for you. Like, there, there's something good to get out of helping people it's not you know you're not losing something so it, it follows that theme to its fullest conclusion and as chris was saying it is utterly heartbreaking and it broke my heart the second time like th- there's not a lot of uh like exposition or like backstory or anything. like backstory like they don't explore the characters that way they explore the characters in the situations that the characters have to face. So you're not getting like like encyclopedic knowledge of these characters, but you're getting like the visceral feeling of these characters. And uh Song Wa, the big uh like muscular wrestler type dude uh, with the pregnant wife, he just steals the show. He's amazing. Yeah, it's just it's very good. Them South Koreans, they make really good movies, man. They I do. Alright, so, other movies. Um, but hang on, if, uh, if that was your number one, we can we can go into our also reigns. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, I have some of those, but, you know, I would have less to say about those. He, he was trying to say, this oh, kind of is my number one, I'll talk about it, but it's not the real number one that I want to talk about. Train to Busan is the real number one, but... You know, someone already mentioned Train to Busan. I was going <laughs> to include these other movies, you know, like Chris was doing his double features the whole time. Not the whole time. Only Can't believe I did a top eight. Or five. That's incredible. <laughs> Chris did way more than five. I, I get a couple more. <laughs> It'll be quick. Uh, so the I got two. Uh, one of them is a Turkish film called Boskin. That's on my also rants. It's amazing. Which it's apparently like one like one of seven films from Turkey to make it over here. It's their first horror film if I'm not mistaken. That sounds about right. And uh apparently it was hard to film because getting the permits was difficult and sometimes they had to bend the rules. Uh so Boskin is the movie basically ends up in like literally hell, but that's at the end of the movie. The majority of the movie is 
just this constant extreme sense of dread of something bad that's going to happen follows uh, these group of police officers who are probably not the best police officers, and they get a call uh, about a... Um, I forget exactly what the call was. I think it was... There, there was a disturbance at this yeah. gi- giant mansion, and one of the other police officers, uh, not in their little squad, but in their department, had gone, um, but he hadn't, like, checked in. You know, he hadn't yeah. reported back for, like, an hour. So they're like, guys, go check on this guy. So after mostly just, like, like there's, like, flashbacks and supernatural stuff and an awesome song in a van... They meet some gypsies who are like, you should not go in that house. And then the dread gives way to literal hell. Like, they're still in the mansion, but for all intents and purposes, they walk through a gate to hell. And it's the actor they got, Ford, who's basically Satan himself, it doesn't wear prosthetics. That's just how he looks, and he looks terrifying. And you will there, not forget that last yeah, half hour. <laughs> yeah, it's very powerful in its imagery. And then I really like the the mythology that it creates for itself, especially with the ending. It's very good. It, it, it the 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 easiest way. I don't even know if this is an easy way to describe it because. These are things that are relatively old at this point, and, and so people don't know things. Um, the the film takes a page right out of Clive Barker's Book of Tricks. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, a lot of people were saying, "Oh, it's like Hellraiser." It's not like Hellraiser. It has nothing to do with Hellraiser or any of the, Clive Barker's other stuff. It's the approach that Clive Barker always took with. Um, a more hypersexual, very violent, very disturbing. Because Clive Barker is an openly uh, gay man. He wasn't openly gay before, um, so he he uh, channeled a lot of that internal um, frustration into his horror um, stories and, and and the the horror films that he did make, um, dealing with the other. And it's very it's very much feels like something Clive Barker would have written without directly ripping off something Clive Barker did. Yeah, Baskin is very good. <laughs> and then uh, the other movie that I'll talk quickly about is The Invitation. God, that one's good too. Um. Which is basically uh, about um, this uh, guy, Will, uh, and his newer wife. Uh, They're going to a party that his ex-wife is holding and a bunch of his friends there. And they all haven't seen each other in a while. And it's sort of like a uh, re-connecting, getting back together sort of thing. And now... I'm not going to spoil Will's problems, but, and I certainly haven't experienced what Will has experienced, but the feeling that comes across when Will is at this party is that he can't connect with anyone else. Um, he doesn't know what to say to them. He feels very alone, even though he's at a party 
and he's very paranoid. He can't trust anyone. Every little thing that happens, uh, he thinks of something else. Like, it's malicious. Like, they're out to get him. Uh, and I can very much relate with that. And I feel like they pull that off, like, superbly. Um, and then bad things happen at the end of the movie. And uh, it's very chilling, especially the last scene. And out of all the movies I watched this year, um, like the ending of this movie was the most upsetting. Um, not like sad upsetting, but like it, it's it bothers you. It's it's yeah, it doesn't sit right. So, like I was saying, like with the witch, it's it's this slow burn that that boils, and you know, you're yeah. diving into the characters, and it's it's a satisfying end, but it wasn't like this big explosive, you know. Right. The invitation has the big explosive payoff to to satisfy the really really because it is an extremely slow burn, but it has a big explosive payoff for it. Corey, did you watch this yet? Because I know you have it on Blu-ray because it was a draft house film and it got shipped to your door whether you wanted it or not. <laughs> the Invitation, you have this movie. because it was, it was a draft house film, so it got shipped to you. Uh, I haven't watched it. Well, hopefully it got shipped to you because it, 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 this was either like the last one that you got before your subscription ran out or the one like right after your subscription ran out. I don't remember. Uh, I'm trying to look at the list. I can't find it. The invitation. Should I join this? It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, I think I got the tribe last. Uh, so that was the one right before oh, the invitation. Yeah. There's no more subscription. Yeah. yeah, they 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 ended that whole thing. Like, I don't even think they're publishing movies anymore. I think they have one more that they have to release, and then they're done. Um, but the, okay. the the Tim Tim the the guy who runs the Alamo he started a a new venture that is kind of similar to what he was doing with draft house films. Um, so I think that's where his focus is going. Um, so the draft house films line, um, is, is over for what it looks appears as of now. Okay. I mean, there's four that don't have numbers. Uh, do they just not have numbers? Um, no. So I, let me, let, let me look it up. Cause some of those are actually, they, they were funders for, but they, actually weren't part of the line. Um, the, the ABC, um, the ABCs of death, those, those are listed there. Those were um, produced by Draft House, but they were not part of the okay. line. Uh, I'm slowly waiting for the website to load, and I'll tell you. Um, so, yeah, Roar was, um, that's an older film that they helped uh, resurrect, but that was released by Olive Films. Um, Confetti of the Mind, I can't remember that one. We Are X, that one they just are promoting strongly. So uh, looks like Clown Forever. That's the, that's the last one that they're they they have to release because uh, they already released Men and Chicken. Um, but they, so they still have to put out the Blu-ray for Clown Forever, and I think that's it. They're done. Unless Confetti of the Mind is one of their titles, and they, they do one more after that. Yeah, I think I started with R100, and then I got through the tribe. Yeah, which is the one right before the invitation. Damn, Corey, you Sorry. missed out. 
<laughs> it's on Netflix. But now it's harder for him to watch it because he has to, you know, he can't just go through his Blu-rays. <laughs> uh, it's, it's so easy to watch. It's actually harder to watch. No, the invitation is really good. If you if you go to my letterbox of, you know, where I compiled, like, all the different movies I saw this year, Baskin and the Invitation are actually side by side. <laughs> all right. Interesting. <laughs> good alternative number ones, Corey. All right. Uh, number ones. Crank to be son and those other things that you said. <laughs> that works. That works. Uh, all right, uh, let's let's round this out. Uh, what are your what are your also rants, Chris? Chris, you have to uh, reveal what is your actual number one movie of the year. My actual number one movie of the year is the other movie that came out this year that says this movie was made for Chris, <laughs> and that is Swiss yep. Army Man. <laughs> Okay. Uh, magical realism. Um, it's a tale about learning how to love yourself. The greatest love story of all the, time. The greatest love story of all time. Um, how to love yourself, how to accept yourself, even if you're not exactly the best person. It doesn't skirt around consequences of bad actions, um, but it does make the film a little um, harder to, to fully accept uh, but it, it fully plays into, like, everybody deserves to love themselves, no matter who they are or what they've done. Maybe maybe they're doing these bad things in their life because they don't love themselves. Um, so what everyone should do is meet a corpse that washed up on a metaphorical beach and turn that corpse into your inner self and interact with your inner self and learn who you really are. Swiss Army Man is incredible. That's my actual number one. Yeah, this one. was my number one uh, from from like June or July, whenever it came out, until uh, like just December or January. When you watch yeah. Moonlight, yeah. Um, let's see. My also also rans. I won't go for you know the the only non horror movie I'll also ran is The Nice Guys. Oh yes. Everybody should see the nice guys. That movie is fucking terrific. That's my gosling for the year. Um, uh, for for horror well, movies, also, like uh, I can't believe. There's also La La Land for for gosling. There is also La La Land. Well, that was so. There's a whole scene in La La Land where he is dressed up in an '80s tribute band. That was Ryan Gosling openly. Um, Acknowledging my love for him, and that was a gift. That was a gift given directly to me. Um, that whole that whole sequence um, with the '80s tribute band. And I heard your message loud and clear, um, Ryan. All love. You'll you'll make a real jazz musician play uh, play whatever that stupid song was. I I ran. I ran, I ran so far away. Um, <laughs> But but for like horror movies, like I could have gone in so many different directions. Um, you know, we had really good studio horror movies this year. The Conjuring Two, I thought, was leagues better than the first Conjuring. Yeah, um, Conjuring Two is good. Uh, Don't Breathe is another excellent Don't home invasion thriller. Very good. Uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, if if you don't count the last fifteen minutes, is an absolutely amazing film. Fantastic. <laughs> Autopsy of Jane Doe that Corey covered. Um, the invitation that Corey covered. Amazing. Um, there is a, a Norwegian slasher film that has a lot of philosophical weight to it that I thought was a tremendous film. It's called The Windmill. Um, 
the full title, the original title is called The Windmill Massacre. It is a 100% an 80s style slasher movie, but it's not oh, 80s um, homage, <laughs> as we've learned. Um, it, it, it's 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 not a throwback to the 80s. It's just you know it's that kind of slasher film, um, but it's also it's got a lot of really um, powerful philosophical topics. The windmill was great. Um, if there's one also ran that I could urge everybody to go see because nobody has seen it. It would be He Never Died. Um, he Never Died is a Canadian horror comedy starring punk legend Henry Rollins. Um, for the love of God, don't watch a single trailer for it. Um, not because I want you to go in blind or it's better that way. It's because the fucking trailer spoils the surprise at the end of the movie in like the first five seconds. Nice. It, the trailer treats the trailer treats the surprise as if it was the basic plot concept. It's not a twist. It doesn't ruin your appreciation of the film if you know it. But it is a fun little surprise, like a, like a little a cookie at the end of the movie. Um, and the trailer gives that away almost immediately, and it's bullshit. Uh, but yes, Henry Rollins is a legend, and this movie uses this legend perfectly. He's badass, he's cranky, he's hilarious. He never died. Great movie. Please go see it. Um, and another, another film, I just watched it this morning. I wanted to make sure that I saw it just in case it crept into my top five, was The Eyes of My Mother. Yay! That movie it was really, 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 it's really up. good. <laughs> it's a debut film, um, super, super indie style, shot in black and white, um, starring Portuguese actors. Um, it's mostly spoken in Portuguese, but there's some English in there too. Um, yeah, that movie's fucked up. It was good. If you want to talk of- about not having a role model like Moonlight, well... The Eyes of My Mother is another way it could have gone. Yes, there, there are two options in life. You could either rise above your very terrible um, environment or succumb to that environment and perpetrate the really badness that happens. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, but, yeah, those are basically and, – and, you know, we talked about Baskin, like so many things. Um, the films of Mickey Keaton – um, those weren't anywhere near my tops, but he put out two films this year that are good. Um, so he's a he's an, an up and coming uh, voice in the horror community that I think people should pay attention to. Uh, the two movies he put out this year is a uh, Darling and Carnage Park. Uh, Darling is a throwback to Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Uh, Carnage Park is a really good 70s um most dangerous game style thriller that has a really fucking terrible first 15 minutes. Uh, he, he tries to be Quentin Tarantino for the first 15 minutes and it don't work, but he, he ditches it and then tells his story and then, and then it starts working really well. Uh, but yeah, so Mickey Keaton, uh, Keating, um, I think he's, he's someone that people should look out for, but yeah, just like for a year that had so many think pieces of how horror is dead, like I can't tell you how many people were were already like five feet into the ground digging of how horror was terrible and dead just because the new Blair Witch movie didn't make fifteen billion dollars. But this year had so many good movies and legitimately great movies. 
Um, like I said, of my real top five, four of them are horror movies that I talked about on this podcast. It wasn't a crazy stretch uh, for me. So, yeah, absolutely. Like, get out there. Tons of good movies to go yeah. see. Uh, Corey, you got anything else? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, Under the Shadow, like I mentioned earlier, earlier, the Iranian horror movie. Um, which takes place during the Iran-Iraq uh, war in the 80s. Uh, it's sort of like the Babadook, uh, sort of the same style of movie. It's very good. The Boy, which is a horror movie about a creepy-looking doll. What? Uh, I just like leaping through time. Oh, I don't, I don't get like the, the reference. The girl who left through time. But the boy who left through time. Oh. No, it's just the boy. No, just yeah, just the boy. He the boy is a doll. Yeah, that's that's a weird movie because it's and it subverts your expectations. Um, you'd think it'd be like, oh, it's just a creepy doll and spooky, but no, it it knows what it's doing. Especially the end. The end is very good. Um, the monster. Have you seen that, Chris? No, I still want to see that one. I've heard that one was pretty good. Uh, it's about a dysfunctional mother and daughter, and they're driving. The mother comes to the realization that she can't take care of her daughter anymore, and so they're driving to the father's house to, you know, drop her off, and while they're driving, uh, they hit the monster, the titular, titular monster. I think it's um, titch. Titular? Yep. Yeah. Um, which monster. I think... Homage, it could be. Homage. Which is, uh, I think the monster was all prosthetics. It was, it's kind of like, um, I don't know, you, I could, you could, I could see someone compare it to like the kind of horror that Alien is. The first one, it's uh, also heartbreaking. It's it's amazing what they can do with a whole movie. Uh, like a, a lot of these movies, like Hush, like um, Under the Shadow, like movies where it's in like one location. Yeah. Uh, and then they can do they can do so much with just that one place. Uh, what else? Uh, The Handmaiden. I need to watch that again because that was a lot to take in. <laughs> I don't even know. I still don't know what to say about that movie. It's it's an unconventional mystery slash love story. From what I hear, extremely erotically charged. Don't, yes, don't watch it with it your is, parents. It is very erotic and very erotic. Very sensual. And I think they put it to good use. What else? Um, La, uh, La La Land is very good. Yep. I love La La Land. Uh, the music is amazing. Ryan Gosling is a beautiful, beautiful boy. <laughs> he even learned to play the piano for that movie, which is amazing. Yep. That that kind of inspires me. And like not even just piano, but just like in general, like. If he can just straight up learn piano for a movie, like I can straight up learn whatever the hell I yeah. want to learn. 
Yeah, but he doesn't have a day job, so that's true. It's yeah, I mean, true. It might take me longer to do his it. Day job was three months of learning the piano for pre-production for this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's true, but still, the only difference is time. Yeah. Um, uh, before the flood, the Leonardo DiCaprio climate change National Geographic documentary scored uh, by Trent Reznor. Really? If, I, if, if, I'm, if I'm remembering correctly. Dude's all over the place. Produced by, yep, music by Mogwai, Trent Reznor, and Atticus Ross, and Gustavo Santaolala. Interesting. Um, that should be required viewing in schools. Um, I wanted to see the, uh, what is, what is the sequel to The Inconvenient Truth? No, no clue. Oh. It's called an inconvenient. Oh, it says 2017. I thought it was. I thought it came out 2016. An inconvenient sequel. An inconvenient sequel. Power. That's probably going to be awesome. I don't know. Uh, we should fix the damn planet before we break it for good. Um, and uh, you know, Chihayafudu. Uh, <sighs> mainly the first film. Second film. Got some issues. Uh, first film, it's fantastic. Embrace of the Serpent. Have either of you heard of that? No. What? No. <laughs> Swedish film, it looks like. Swedish? No. I, I just I saw uh, some of the people who are starring in it. It's uh, Jean Jean Biljovet. So that his spelling. That's why I thought Swedish before I, I clicked on the thing. I think it's Colombian. Yeah, Colombian, uh, Venezuela, and Argentina. So this movie is... I need to look into this um, because I haven't looked into it yet. But apparently... So it's based on the diaries of these two um, explorers that went into the Amazon. And apparently their diaries are make up a lot of what we know about the native people of the Amazon. Uh, and this movie is dedicated to all the voices of people that we'll never hear. So uh, it's all in black and white. It it follows the one explorer in the past and the one explorer. Uh, the one in the past is like eight, the late 1800s. And then the next one, or 1909. And then the next one's 1940s. It's it's like um hmm. it it plays tribute to a group of people that were either you know slaughtered or brainwashed and converted with Western you know European uh, religions and you know put into slavery for rubber and plantations and all the bad shit. But it's also like, like there's a part in the movie where the the explorer and he is a a shaman guide, and they met up with the with this tribe, and the tr- while they're with the tribe, the the explorer is like friends with the tribe, um, and while they're there, he shows them a compass and he tells them like this compass will always point to like this star that you know, uh, and that's 
very useful to them because otherwise they would have to like figure out where north is through traditional means. And so when they're leaving this tribe, the the white explorer he doesn't have his compass anymore because the tribe took it, uh, and he wants it back because he if they he feels that if they keep the compass they will lose that tribal traditional knowledge. It'll no longer be needed. And the Amazonian shaman is like, who are you to deny these people knowledge? Knowledge belongs to everyone. So I, it's it's very it's a very good film. Good. I looked it up on IMDb, and that poster looks familiar. I've seen that poster somewhere before. Too many movies. <laughs> Too many. There are a lot of movies. Um, yeah, I can leave it at that. Uh, what about you, Corey? Mind, Arrival. I haven't mentioned yet. Arrival is very good. Uh, it's about communication and how how important that is to uh, relationships. Um, not just. I'm sad that that director doesn't seem like he's going to make another enemy, but I'm still excited for everything he does. Uh, isn't he making Dune? And and Blade Runner two. Oh, he's doing Blade Runner. Another Dune. With with Gosling. With Ryan Gosling. Oh, sorry. Continue. Um, Zootopia is very good. Um, uh, just that's that's another thing that like it's pretty much a huge metaphor for uh, race and racism through uh, the use or through the telling of the animal kingdom. I wish they steered into that yeah. way harder yeah. but i also understand it is a children's <laughs> movie but still still that's one of the things that i thought was like a lot of people really criticizing it for simplifying such a complex issue that's it's like how people learn well yeah that's how kids <laughs> learn uh the lobster was uh a really good just about like relation that's more interpersonal relationships um and how we uh how we interpret those as a society I didn't include that because I, I decided that was a 2015 movie. I don't know, yeah. but yeah, it's <laughs> it's a very it's a very fresh and like damning look on the current uh like playing field or whatever you want to call it for uh, romantic relationships. Yeah. Uh, Sing Street is another good one. Um, it's just so so much pure energy and uh, loving for. 80s, 80s music and it's like uh, adolescent love and I've seen a couple clips from that. I do, I do want to check that out at some point. I never seen the director's other stuff, which apparently is a sin because I guess the the commitments is like one of the best musical based movies ever. I mean, uh, Dana and I saw saw the trailer, or I saw the trailer actually, and I showed it to Dana, and like every at the end it shows a bunch of uh, artists that are listed and. She's like, yeah, this is my movie. <laughs> um, Kubo and the Two Strings is also very good, uh, just about uh, wanting to be part of a family and being part of a family and how important that is to a person. Let's see, what else? What else? Miles Ahead was a really good biopic about Miles Davis, uh, played by Don Cheadle and directed by Don ah, Cheadle. I love Don yeah. Cheadle. I didn't. Is that, I didn't. I didn't know that that was available for the the general public to see in some uh, way. I found it through Stars on Amazon, which they give you a free seven day trial. 
So I watched it on that. Uh, if you have if you have a curses trip, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the last one, uh, since I uh, have to pee and also go to the grocery store and buy dinner, um, is Men and Chicken, which <laughs> which was like this absurd <laughs> comedy uh, featuring Mags Mikkelsen in his uh, native uh, Denmark. Denmark. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's it's a yeah. Danish film. Um, it's just about uh, the, these two. These two dudes, they found out they're optic and they want to find um, their their uh, blood brothers, their blood father, um, and it's just so so ridiculous. They their uh, their blood family, they run, or they have this huge house, and they're freaking hoarders. They have uh, various forms of livestock that um, I'm not gonna spoil what ends up with that. Um, like they're so weird, and it's just look, Mags Mikkelsen plays this character that uh, thinks he's the bee's knees, but totally isn't. And his brother's the down-to-earth guy that never is allowed to be the voice of reason that he is because Mags Mikkelsen's character just takes over everything, and it's ridiculous. I just can't get over Mads is. Uh... 70s yeah. porn stash <laughs> like so that just that just don't fit that don't look right um all right but let's uh just close this show out uh when you're on the horn for four and a half hours more than four and a half hours good thank luck you, everyone yeah. who listened to all of this <laughs> oh yes thank you uh, you Corey, where can we find you on the internet i have a place on the internet again i'm on the internet uh you can go to my website, Corey.zone. Um, this is with an E and a C, not like this other guy. <laughs> or uh, on Twitter, at CoreyZone. I'm going to be making uh, a movies list with hopefully more coherent and substantive uh, text than what has been here. And that'll go up whenever this podcast goes up and i'm sure the list will be slightly different but still uh chris where where do we find you i am on the twitters at gokufi and you know you can yell at the taiku podcast and Corey will just route that to me <laughs> it'll be good <laughs> all right i'm on twitter at passionate k the podcast is on Twitter at Taiku Podcast, T-A-I-I-K-U. Uh, Tumblr is taikupodcast.tumblr.com, and our website is taikupodcast.com. Got the whole crew here for the movie section. Thank you all for coming on. Thank you. Thanks. It's fine. Goodness. <laughs> I'm being told that like all the words that I'm saying, I'm pronouncing them wrong.
That's and so okay. there, there, there's doubt as to whether when I say these words, if you guys or anyone who might be listening would actually know what I'm trying to say because I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what are you talking about? What? What are you talking about? Oh, no, Kate was just telling me. She's like, what are these words that you're trying to say? I don't think those are the right words. And it just turns out I'm pronouncing them incorrectly. But I didn't know. Uh, homage. Oh. She's saying it's it's homage. Homage. Really? Wait. What? This is news to me. Yeah, I I always said it was homage too, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually say it. Um, and then I said sepia tone. She's saying it's sepia. Okay, I I think that one's correct. Yeah, sepia. That's how I would say it. It's terrible. I've never I never knew that. Homage. What the fuck? Homage. I went to dictionary.com and it homage. says homage. That's what Google says. Or too. wait, no, homage. Sorry. Homage. homage. Dictionary.com says homage. Yeah. Homage. What? See, I, I thought that I thought the H was silent and it was a long A. Homage. Damn dictionary. I've been saying that for years. Nobody's ever corrected me before, and I've never heard anyone else say the word. I'm gonna keep saying it wrong. Homage. What? The Taiku Podcast, where we're always learning. We are. Um. <laughs> you just blew, like, Corey's mind. He's like, what? With with homage? He's like, what? What? Homage. I keep pressing it, and it doesn't sound any better. <laughs> homage. Homage. Mm. Okay. okay. All right. I concede. <laughs> oh goodness all right the more you know put the little like the star theme okay 